first of all, how the fuck are you? How I'm the fuck good. are you? Yeah, how are you? Good? good. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in Australia, you'd be Shemi or Sheza. Shemi. You'd okay. be Shezza. Well, I think you would definitely be a Shezza. You had never been officially given a Australian slash wasteland name. Shezza. Mate, how does the day find you? Pretty good. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of, kind of, I mean, I'm seriously, I'm hopped up a little bit on energy drinks right now. Because, <laughs> uh, it's like 8 a.m. and I haven't been sleeping since 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I'm good. I'm good. That's I might good. be speaking a little bit too fast. That's what I need to sort of pace myself. That's what I got to do. How about you? What are you what's, what's going on? I'm, I'm great, man. I was just a tiny little errand I had to do appropriately. I was driving at the time because, you know, the driving DNA is so interwoven. Yeah. It's driving in mythology, uh, Hashem. That's it. No. It's it's okay. <laughs> uh, the gift, the gift of Mad Max of this, this seemingly unexpectedly harmonious uh, recipe of complete post-apocalyptic discord with like fundamentally you know, human and uh, you know, archetypical mythological concepts and Fury Road in so many ways was just this first glimpse. Can you believe that we are in a universe where not only one but two, obviously Fury Road will will be what it'll be, but uh, that's very much how we're thinking. We're thinking that it'll be essentially like the Fury Road trilogy, if you will, to complement the original Mad Max trilogy. I mean that's that's amazing that they're actually pulling it off. I mean this is definitely like you know like an extension of the original trilogy. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean a lot of people I've noticed they're not really that much into it. I mean I mean I'm just judging by YouTube comments. Hmm. But that's so that's not a good you know measure by any means. But no. I mean I've I'm noticing some people who are like you know it's a really strange thing this this whole Mad Max fandom you know sometimes when you reach out to a lot of people and it turns out that a whole lot of those people from the original trilogy you know they are like 50 years old so they have a totally different perspective on those new movies but mm-hmm. i don't care either way it's just mad max as, as much as possible please give it all to us yeah, you know absolutely. as many movies as many games books even whatever it is as long as george miller is behind the wheel yes yeah. perfectly phrased man well first of all to listeners and audience members uh if you haven't heard of mad max bible i don't want you in my audience so just like delete your podcasting app right now if okay and i know uh, that's aggressive but it, it expresses how 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 fervently i truly believe this man and this isn't smoke blowing uh or, or guzzling gas smoke blowing it, it, i really do believe you're you're the top of the top of the uh, youtube mad max uh, reporting uh, food chain it's also worth mentioning that the guards uh seem to be wearing the same costumes uh they were wearing in fury road so That's yet another thing that was reused from the sequel. Then there are a few war boys nearby and a number of the wretched trying to get onto the platform just like in Fury Road. And since I'm fairly familiar with the script for this film, it leads me to believe that this is one of the more pivotal scenes for Furiosa herself. Like you're the alpha. You are you are in your own citadel when it comes to oh. Mad Max content creation, buddy. <laughs> well, I mean, thank you, but you I mean, I wouldn't consider myself that. I mean, as far as YouTube, I mean, I don't know if there's a whole lot of people who are actually doing the same thing. I mean, there are some, uh, but when it comes to fandom, there's definitely mm. people who are way more involved. Uh, I would even call them my mentors because they actually go out to you know, all the meetings and meet all the people and write books about this stuff, you know, especially mm. Melvin, you know, I don't know if you know Melvin, Melvin Zed. Uh, Melvin uh, he Zed, released no. a book in French. Mm. He okay. released a book in French called Ultraviolence in the Cinema Part One. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's like this 
Yeah, I mean, he released this book just recently. It's still in French, but they're trying to translate it into English. And I just read it through Google Translate because it's the only nice. way right now. And the book is absolutely fantastic, you know. And he provided me with a whole lot of, you know, like behind the scenes information. And, he, you know, he really goes out there. So massive props to that guy. Case in point, uh, Shem is that uh, meticulous kind of really granular kind of um, chronicler. So if you were, if this was the word wasteland, your name would be the chronicler, I reckon, because that's what you do. Yeah. Is is you you take, and I've I've had it. Uh, your your repetition preceded you a bit in the Reddit comments where I went hunting. I was trying to find you, and they were like, "I know this guy. Um, yeah, he, he he works really hard. He manages the the Mad Maxia Wikia." So you actually had oh, this yes. moment of like, yeah. So. Um, and uh, because I, I really do respect that it's like you've just you're focusing on the YouTube. I don't think you're on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else, right? I, I am. YouTube. I am on. I am oh, on you Twitter. are. I mean, actually, I am in a few places. You probably. I don't know if you. I mean, I'm uh, one of the moderators. I think the only one right now on the Mad Max Movies Forums dot com. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where it all began many many years ago, mm -hmm. and then sort of the the amount of knowledge that I just sort of gathered um, uh, it warranted writing articles about this stuff mm -hmm. because people just didn't know about the vehicles and the stuff that was on the Mad Max uh, movies page was kind of outdated so I was like you know maybe I should expand on that mm -hmm. so I went on to the Mad Max Wikipedia and I started writing more articles and eventually it you know I arrived at a point where I was writing an article about the timeline of Mad Max and with documents that nobody had ever seen before and I'm like well it's a fascinating topic and I thought People should probably watch this in the form of a video. Like, they should not be reading this. This is pretty obscure at this point, this mm -hmm. place, this Wikipedia. Why not just put it up on YouTube? And I did. Video get, you know, gained some traction. And that's how it just started. I basically transferred all this stuff onto YouTube, which, I mean, it's more um, time consuming. It takes a lot more effort to actually make those videos, but I think it's worth it. Oh, well, we thank you so much. And I want to also be this kind of conduit of so much uh, unexpressed. There's a lot of uh, people just watching stuff, not commenting, not sharing, none of that. And so for all of those, and I hope I guilted a few people into liking, sharing, commenting, going and supporting you with that <laughs> little with that little dig there. But on behalf of all of them, like, thank you, truly, man. Thank you so much. When a new Mad Max hey, Bible no video goes out there, it's like, oh, let's go, popcorn, just like, <laughs> boom. Like, so, you know, I, but I, what, one of the things that uh, I say to uh, my people who I speak with on the shows across the Topic Podcast Network is um, I can tell that all of it is literally just a byproduct of who you are and like you and your kinship and your dynamic wow. with Mad Max, um, which is the best kind of content. Like you're not gunning for some kind of subscriber goal or whatever. This is all just sort of dripping from you. And um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, it's so yeah, good. that is that is pretty much the goal. I mean, I mean, when I started, I mean, yeah, I mentioned that I, you know, I like hit thirty thousand subscribers, and I've set up a Patreon Congrats. too. Yeah. But that was only thank you. But that was only because some people were asking, you know can i support you in different ways so i set up a patreon and i don't even entirely work, know how it works so there's nothing on it <laughs> but like, they support okay, so you exists yeah i mean yeah it is it's there i mean i don't know if, i mean i don't have patreons right now and i don't really like <laughs> count on getting any but it's just like it's there if somebody yeah. wants to support it i mean it's just no and the entire philosophy uh, uh, behind those videos was that the opposite of what youtube expects which is like weekly uploads yeah. And they really want you to pump out this content. And I'm like, no, this Hello. is not about this. I mean, it's not about, I mean, it's, it's about making content which lasts longer. Mm -hmm. And this, that, that was always the idea. So just to make a video, I mean, the Mad Max franchise goes on for like 40 something years now. Why mm -hmm. should I just 
force it every week. It doesn't have to be like that. You know, you, you no. can just sort of like get into a topic really in depth, yeah. exhaust the topic as much as possible, and mm -hmm. then make a nice video, nice presentation, and leave it. And just there. Yeah. It's there for everybody to watch. Whatever happens, happens. And that was always the philosophy behind that channel. And uh, I hope to continue doing that. Except right now, there's always, you know, there's also Furiosa coming out. So that warrants That's right. kind of, you know, like this nature. I mean, you know, it warrants updates. Uh, yeah. So that also steers me away from, you know, other content, but other, you know, videos that I like to make. But, you know, the, the essential uh, idea behind the channel is to make videos which are longer and last longer. Mm. And, and not just that, but it's really all killer no filler. So I've um, seen them all. Uh, I regularly rewatch them because they are so detailed that um, very much uh, like I think... Um, uh, what's his name? He's really great. And I keep forgetting his name. But I just have I have the, the, the book here. Brendan McCarthy. He's the one who says, look, oh, yeah. um, for me, Mad Max is something you need to watch over and over and over again to be able to yes. really, um, you know, get, get into all those details. Margaret Tixel, that's, that's her approach too, which is like, this stuff is, um, first of all, timeless. Any Joseph Campbell Campbellite would tell you that uh, the, the, the there and back again of it, of, of, of Fury Road. Um, uh, and and which when something is timeless it can be reinterpreted over time it can be uh it is evergreen and you really do um get something new out of it at each time with each reviewing um yeah that's how that's how you know brendan mccarthy was like for me it's it's not star wars it's mad max like that's yeah. this 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 contains that sort of moat of of the the soul of um of humanity and, and mythology like that's that's enough for him and it is is such an interesting time to be in shem like 600 plus days out but i'm already feeling that's why like we've really started ramping up and you know one's going out later today this is two we're recording now and um the idea is basically by when this thing is coming out to maybe have 30 or so episodes whatever um because we we again just like yourself topic podcast network we're yeah. very anti-algorithmic we just we only want to have worthwhile conversations never about just pumping out the content and by then by when we're like maybe 20 20 days out like we will have like our, our own little armada of like yeah pe people who have been on the show and and this family of people who have like spoken and and kind of get come together and cross-pollinated you know um hopefully we'll yeah. get some some of the people from we had uh, daniel basuti who was you know who played freya in god of war she's been on the network mm -hmm. uh looking at oh, getting um yeah looking at getting a couple of folks from uh furios's uh behind the scenes team criminally underappreciated behind the scenes team some stuntmen um just people oh. who are there yeah so it's it's all happening so, yeah. and 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 obviously for you to sit in on on any of those would be a great honor a great privilege oh, bro absolutely yeah, sure. i can i can recommend you some people as well if they're willing to uh yep. participate terrific yeah. so there you go and also i mean you know once you start ramping up all this i mean building this hype for the yep. movie it's like it doesn't st i mean this is what i noticed i don't know if you followed the product i mean i don't know if you followed oh, yeah. the this new matrix uh stuff. oh yeah we have a matrix podcast yeah <laughs> yeah so i was uh, yeah so i was sort of like following this hype train up until the movie was released and then it just sort of like stopped mm. and i'm like uh, i don't i don't think this is what's going to happen with furiosa i think it's going to no. keep going even further because i think it's all yeah it just keeps growing and um mm -hmm. I think that's because, of, well, like, like you said, it's because of the nature of the film. It's yeah. so packed that you can even start disassembling the movie before it's made and yep. then even more after it's released. So <laughs> it just keeps going, you know? So that, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm really having high hopes for this film that it actually delivers, and I'm pretty sure that it will. I think it will. I think it will. Um, 
let's quickly because I'm curious what precise energy drink are we talking today for you? Um, it's well, it's like <laughs> it's not like like a Red Bull. A Red Bull, it's like okay, a knockoff yeah, cool. Red Bull. Yeah, <laughs> I dig coffee. it. I'm going to in the edit. I'm going to Google Mad Max and Red Bull and see what comes up. And whatever I come up with is going to be on the screen now. So who knows? It might <laughs> okay. be a meme. It might <laughs> Find- be a compilation. <laughs> Find the cheapest knockoff uh, Red Bull that's out there and just Photoshop it. I don't know. I don't also, know and and then that. to our talented artists who probably have no idea what you look like, I want you to um, depict just like this hopped up, like ready to what a lovely day, like ready to go, like Mr. <laughs> as long as you give me yeah. a beard. Uh, yes, I only that okay. just a beard. That's that's oh. all. <laughs> well, oh, see, we haven't seen a bearded warboy. So, guys, I want you to do bearded warboy because first of all, warboys paint themselves white regardless. Yeah. So, bearded warboy um, with holding a Red Bull. Let Let's go. Fucking what a lovely. Actually, day. there is you know? there is uh, Richard Norton. He has a like a heavy stubble in the film. I noticed. Oh. Yeah, He's okay. one kind of weirded, uh, weirded, uh, bearded yeah. uh, war boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well you know, no, he's not weird... a war boy. He's, a, he's the Imperator. Exactly, Imperator. Um, weirded, you know, you just made me want to talk about nomenclature, you know, like Kamikaze, <laughs> Kamikaze war boy, you know, Gasoline. Oh, by I, I'm so hyped for more Wasteland etymology, like lingo weirdness. Like, yeah. I've, I look at those new characters spotted on the set, you know, obviously in the description as it was with the last episode, please go help some of the people who, who, who sadly, you know, were impacted by the floods that sucked. Um, I always just want to throw that in there, but, but on that really hype, hype side of, of the filming, like just seeing, I call him like, um, I, I think I came up with something. I said crazy lips and like goat man or goat boy or something. Uh, oh, the guy with the horns. Yeah. The, the, I, I have some, what? I have, crackpot theory that he's like he's he's a holy man brought in to to make might be fu- might be fu- yeah. to, to make furiosa um an imperator and to like basically issue the the official challenge uh, or or the, the sort of initiate that sort of process of becoming one and like these are the trials you have to go through and she has to be you know so have some benediction process or whatever might um, be yeah yeah that's some, some i mean there's yeah there. there are some themes like religious themes that they wanted to introduce i mean aside from the cult you know whole yeah. thing and fury yeah. road they wanted to introduce some religious themes in the very early version of fury road um i don't know if i talked about it anywhere but there was like this shaman kind of a per- character in a very early version of fury road who was like huffing gasoline or something and he had yeah. visions and i was just like i was going through this like this those early pages of of this it wasn't even a script it's just like you know drawings and stuff like this and i was like what the hell is this man and you oh, know yeah. this, that's just one of the things that i think i've made a post about this on you have reddit that max was giving birth to himself of the original f- yeah that was just like such a great like, that's just like a fraction of this insanity that was introduced in this film and a good chunk of it actually came from brendan mccarthy who's just like his art is just completely out there to begin with mm-hmm. so he just incorporated that into fury road and they had to dial it down really a lot um compare i mean you know, uh, basically just add to it George Miller's fascination with um, mythology, storytelling, um, meta um, ideas yeah. and, and, and some kind of themes. It, it's like it's just this total, total insanity. And I really feel sorry for Nicola Thuris, who had to go through this and make sense of it and, you know, sort of put this whole thing back together. And he did, you know, so he did. He did. I, man, I, I mean, yeah, I really like that chat. Ex- exactly. I really like that chat that they had. Um, 
uh, at the opera house. Um, uh, it yeah. was a couple of, couple of years ago, and uh, just hearing the three of them talk. I think that was one. I might cut to it now in the edit. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Graphic Festival, the Opera House's annual festival of comics, animation, illustration, and music. My name's Ben Marshall. I'm moderating the conversation today. I'm head of contemporary music at the Opera House and the co-curator of the Graphic Festival, along with Jordan Vazar. We're particularly thrilled to have this Mad Max event in the program this year. Mad Max obviously became part of modern mythology from the moment the first film was released. And now Mad Max Fury Road has taken things completely to another level. It's re-entered the cultural bloodstream in a particularly virulent way. And uh, it has got an incredibly intimate link to graphic this year, this idea of visual storytelling. George Miller has a long love and, and vocal love of comics and the, the graphic storytelling form. Uh, Brendan McCarthy is a very highly regarded graphic novelist in his own right. And obviously, Nico Lathuris has extended and deepened the, um, the story of Fury Road through the subsequently published comics. Uh, 
I'm not sure if you're aware, but the script for Mad Max Fury Road also originally consisted of three and a half thousand storyboard panels, essentially one enormous comic. Uh, it is a modern masterpiece. It's just been voted the film of the year by the world's international film critics, and George has just returned from the San Sebastian Film Festival to accept that award. Before I welcome Fury Road's co-writers to the stage, I want to quickly point out some of the submerged ideas in the iceberg in this script. On its surface, it's a there and back again chase scene, which it is, but there is so much more underneath, and I just wanted to quickly list a few ideas this film explores. Mad Max has always been about man versus the world, nuclear war, post-apocalypse. This film adds the idea of environmental ruin and explicitly asks who killed the world. It explores the idea of people as property, the wives, Max as a blood bag, the war boys are cannon fodder, the mothers being milked for their breast milk, Furios are taken as a child. The film has deep self-evident currents of humanism and feminism that have been much remarked upon. It features huddled masses, grotesque inequality, and class issues. It explores the relationship of the young versus the old, Immortan Joe and the Vuvulini, war pups, wives. It it's very interested in the power of story and myth. Immortan Joe controls people through the narrative he sets out. And the final quote at the end of the film makes you feel like the entire telling of Fury Road is a story by some later people reflecting on ancient history. It explores the permanence of ritual and quasi-religiosity right down to the talismanic steering wheels. The film was infused with an incredibly surreal, phantasmagorical sense of insanity while maintaining a feeling of real internal logic. Max's single word survival is contrasted with Furiosa's redemption. There is a strong theme of healing from the seeds, the blood transfusions, the mother's milk. Uh, the film explores going forwards to a medieval past. George Miller's talked a lot about the idea of cinema as collective dreaming. Um, public dreams shared collectively in theatres. It's the distilled joy of the pure kinetics of cinema and has an amazing range of symbolism. Freud's idea of teeth as power, Immortan Joe's mask, Max's muzzle, the war boy's chroming, Immortan Joe doesn't die till the teeth are ripped off. It's a very dense film. And this is in a film where the titular character has maybe 14 lines, or is it 14 words? It's, uh, it's an incredible achievement. Let's welcome to the stage the co-writers of this remarkable film, Mr. George Miller, Brendan McCarthy, and Nico Lathuris. George Miller possibly needs no introduction, the co-writer and director of Fury Road, one of the world's great filmmakers, an Oscar winner, creator of Mad Max, and a visionary. George, welcome. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you very much. Brendan McCarthy, co-writer and concept artist of Fury Road, an incredibly gifted artist and designer who's applied his unique and influential sensibility to graphic storytelling and film for over 30 years. Brendan, welcome. Cheers. Thanks, Ben. Nico Lathuris, co-writer and dramaturge on Fury Road, an immensely highly regarded dramaturge, and he will hate me for saying this, but you may also recognize him as the grease rat mechanic in the very first Mad Max. Nico, <laughs> welcome.
George, I would love for you to give some exposition of the timing and involvement of Brendan and Nico. They're all three accredited, you all three of you are accredited as co-writers of Fury Road. And I believe most members of the audience, and myself until we started getting into it, assumed the three of you sat in a room, finished off a script and handed it up to be delivered. Whereas I realised on Friday that um, Brendan, it's been 12 years since he was at Kennedy Miller Studios, and you haven't until this event sat in a room together to go over the story and ask questions of one another? Well, uh, I think best to begin by saying my favourite saying by far from John Lennon was life is what happens when you're making other plans. And the way the three of us came together in a way, uh, not together, but came to, to, to put our efforts into what was ultimately Mad Max Fury Road, um, was never planned in any formal way. It just happened. But, uh, you know, Brenda, probably the best thing is to ask you, Brendan, uh, you know, what, how did you come to be involved? Because um, I, I, it's never happened to me before uh, <laughs> in the way that you, you actually came to be involved in the project. Um, well, it, um, with Mad Max, uh, I, I had um, come to Australia when I was a young guy, um, and uh, wandered into a cinema on a sunny afternoon to see Mad Max 2. Thought, oh, I'll watch that, yeah, why not? And walked out shaking, thinking, what on earth have I just seen? Bought another ticket, walked back into the cinema, and then proceeded to watch <coughs> the movie 20 times uh, over the next few weeks. Um, the effect on, of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, on, on me was very profound. I mean, people like John Lennon talk about when I first heard Elvis, it blew my mind, you know, that stuff. Well, so there was something about this Road Warrior film that it just it, it turned me upside down. I couldn't work out how could, how could a film have completely grabbed me and taken me into itself so much and just turned me around. And... Um, so um, I wanted to somehow meet the people who did it. And um, uh, as I was in Australia at the time, I'd, uh, I, I did eventually sort of meet a lot of people, except for George. I met Terry Hayes, I met Byron Kennedy, people like that, Brian Hannant. And um, so I, every now and then I'd, I'd send George a letter about Mad Max or something. So he probably thought, you know, crazy fan or something, I don't know. But um, 15 years later, uh, I did a TV series um, and wrote an episode which was a pastiche of Mad Max and sent it to George with a little note on it saying, whatever happened to Mad Max? Question mark. This was about a decade after Thunderdome. And um, lo and behold, the phone rang a couple of uh, months later. It was Doug, which, who's George's producing partner, saying, we're going to be in LA next week. Do you want to talk? We are thinking about doing a project and we'd like to talk to you about some art. And so I, obviously I came along and um, chatted to George about the Mad Max films, thinking I've got to put it into his head that there's loads of people who would love to revisit that Mad Max world again. That was kind of part of what I wanted to do. And I had, not knowing and having any idea that one day I might actually end up writing the thing so I could see and return to the Mad Max world. So it was a, a very strange, circuitous route to actually um, get to see another Mad Max movie. You know? And what, 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 first thing, what you didn't say 
is that somewhere along that story, you sent me about three pages of drawings of images that you that somehow you conjured uh, at, from from the movie, even characters and things that were never really in the uh, uh, sorry from the world, but not ultimately in the movie, and they blew me away. So. Um, it wasn't as though we suddenly said, oh, this guy's interested in Mad Max. Uh, let's, let's bring him in and see what we can do together. It was those, those, those drawings and your particular vision, which I realise you just see in all your work, uh, were just striking. And there's some fantastic artists out there. And one of the great joys of Mad Max Fury Road was to see all the art that mm -hmm. it generated. But I can still remember the drawings that you had done at those days. And what year did you decide to sit down with Brendan and go, right, I'm engaging you now to begin work on what I hope will be the next Mad Max film? 97. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <Yeah>. It's, it's, <laughs> it's um, last, last millennium. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Crazy. and when did you finish up your contribution? Uh, I worked on Mad Max for two years. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know... Really, the bit that I like doing the most is the early bit where, you know, you just kind of... The thing hasn't become what it is yet because once it settles in structures, loads of ideas have to be got rid of because they don't fit. But there's a period before that where it hasn't locked itself down as, an, as a story totally. And so you don't know whether this character's going to make it or not or this scene. And... Um, I, I like that period a lot, actually. It's very kind of amorphous and creative time. It wasn't until Brendan, who re just recently got back into the country, that uh, I was able to tell Brendan a little story, which in it is, a, is a slightly negative story, but um, we were also working, when we decided to work together, with a writer who's not Australian, and well-credentialed, uh, very impressive in the room, but, and we said, let's try it for a month or two, the three of us working together, it may not work, and so on. And, uh, and he was writing, and um, the work was very, like, obvious and superficial, and he was writing Max as if he was Arnie Schwarzenegger and saying cute action hero lines or whatever, without really digging down deep into what we were trying to do. And... Um, because you, you can't start a story on the surface, you dig down deep. Anyway, uh, at a certain point, Brendan and I were working and then I'd bounce across and look at the material that was coming out of, of, from, from this writer and it was really bad. And I told him, look, it's just not working, it's not working. And, and he said, well, I think it works, I think it works, you know. And uh, I said, well, Brendan agrees with me. And he said, and I'm sorry for the swear word, but he said, what the fuck would he know? He's just a cartoonist. <laughs> and how wrong that, he was. A guillotine dropped. <laughs> and Brennan and I worked for the next two years together. And we brought into the fold uh, Peter Pound uh, and Mark Sexton. Yeah. And seriously, it, in many ways, it was the time of our lives. Um, and if, I'll just say one thing, uh, and, and, and then I'll, I'll stop about that. One day, here we were building this 
We called it the Mad Max room, building this storyboard around the room, everyone drawing. I mean, I was one of those kids uh, growing up in Queensland where comics were illicit. We weren't, you know, we just weren't allowed to do them. My parents thought we were all a little bit somehow, you know, not particularly smart because of it. But drawing with people and I, uh, 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 sitting in a room, and it occurred to me one day that the four of us grew up in isolated communities. The four of us spent our life, in the, our childhoods in the imaginative life. You from a remote village in Ireland, uh, Peter Pound from Western New South Wales, me from Western Queensland, and Mark from Norfolk Island. It worked beautifully. Mm. So 1997 to 1999, beginning of 2000, what happened with the Mad Max work that you created with Brendan, Mark and Peter at that point? When did Nico start to become involved? Well... Um, well, you know, it's, it, it is crazy, but this film was greenlit three times by three different studios, and it would fall down, and we'd go on to another movie, and then it would get up again, and it would fall down with a different cast, and it, but it was a film you really couldn't kill with a stick, and I have to... You know, we called Doug Mitchell, my producing partner, the honey badger. If you know about the honey badger, he won't let go. He looks like a honey badger. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, and it, he won't let go. It, it, but it was a film you couldn't somehow kept on forcing itself on us. And, 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 and so we ended up making it. But, um, but the first time it fell down, Brendan and I, we also worked on another script and then Brendan went off. I went on to Happy Feeds, which it took a long time, and and the and and then we revisited it. And by then, Nico and I have known each other for so long. Actually, we went to school together, um, and but it wasn't really until you went to NIDA mm. that I got to know know you well, and and then Nico uh, was. I began to hear that of the work that Nico was doing uh, as an actor and a dramaturg, particularly highly influential in, in Australian television, having been very influential in theatre uh, about process of the actor. And to cut a long story short, it really occurred to me that the process that the actor goes through, particularly in the theatre, and the dramaturgy of all of that, and the process that the screenwriter goes through of virtually parallel or over, overlap in the Venn diagram hmm. so, so much, and they, except they use slightly different language. Hmm. So often I've had my most successful collaborations with actors, uh, Nick Enright on, on Lorenzo's Oil, uh, Mark and Christopher on Witches of Eastwick, even though that was entirely his screenplay, they, they, they know what it's like to be in front of an audience live and responding moment to moment to the rhythms and the feedback that's sort of happening. So I asked Nico to get involved. Uh, yeah, it was in 2002. So I was very fortunate that um, I received the, um, um, the legacy of, of 
3,500 storyboards already done and a script. So I came in at a point when that was all there. And um, I looked at it and thought, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? You know, it's just like this crazy, mad uh, action, wall to wall action. How can I, what, what am I doing here? So um, I had to very quick, I worked by myself for about uh, probably about 10 months before I actually really started engaging with George uh, at a very intimate level. But during that time, um, I decided I had to find a way of um, understanding this totality uh, bit by bit. So I laid out a, a huge sheet of paper and drew a timeline and began uh, looking at the different things that were going on in the script and putting them down where they were happening and um, noting that there were 120 deaths and, um, and um, this is where Splendid uh, falls off the, um, off the war rig. And uh, it finally came out to be about some, uh, 22 sections and um, I thought, oh, 22, I wonder what that means. I also did know that this was not a story about somebody um, surviving uh, by vanquishing 122 enemy. I knew that it was a story about uh, a man who, um, well, there's two ways of looking at it. One was that it was a man about who was going from being alone to being uh, belonging. It was about a man running away from his better self, uh, whose better self catches up to him. It was about a man who uh, starts off as a wounded animal and ends up as a, very, as a highly socialised human being capable of love. So I had this sort of, these tools to work with and I found in Jung uh, this idea of individuation. And individuation accounted for the process of a a human being starting as a wounded animal and becoming a fully socialised, fulfilled human being, self-realised. And I looked further and found, uh, looked for the number 22. And I found that number 22 in the Hebrew alphabet and I found the number 22 in the um, 22 paths of the um, tree of life of the uh, Kabbalah and which also correlated with the 22 uh, cards of the major arcana in the tarot. Um, <clears throat> so I used this model as a map by which to understand and to calibrate the journey of this man through the, through the chase or through the race, through the chase and the race back. And um, that took me about uh, 10 months to, to do all that work. And then I felt I was able to um, meet you and talk to you and have something, some understanding of the work. And I mean, after the next, the next 12 years, I mean, we're, um, we got more into um, interrogating the script and, and really the real interrogation didn't sort of started when we got to Africa and had to really look at the, the engine that was driving this incredible beast.
you know, a lot happens once you start the physical production, but Absolutely. we kept on revisiting it and so, and so on. <coughs> yep. I didn't know you were using numerology to make this film. <laughs> <laughs> and at the other end of the spectrum, Absolutely. Brendan, you talked about, you know, you'd seen your role as bringing a little bit of punk rock energy and sort of right. pulling George from the babe, happy feet world back yeah. to this sort of electrical feeling you had coming out of Mad Max yeah. 2. Yeah, um, yeah. In in a sense, I was um, after Road Warrior. Thunderdome was great, but I, I felt a bit disappointed, and I felt that it didn't quite do what I, you know I was hoping for. And I thought another Mad Max film has to kind of recapitulate Mad Max Two and move it on further. And uh, I felt very much that that was the energy I was looking for in a Mad Max film. And if George calls me the sort of the guardian of Mad Max in a way, I would be, I would be his radar for stuff. So, you know, there would be certain ideas, you know, just didn't, they weren't right for Mad Max. They might be good ideas, but somehow they weren't the right energy, you know. But, uh, but uh, I... But it's important to remember that we sat and talked about the movie a lot mm. and actually wrote a, a prose version of the story before we started the storyboards. We knew basically where it was going to be going. And, and Brendan was, was like, I don't know, if when you work together you, there's a kind of fraternity or a, a, that happens a collegial approach and you're sort of the... You were sort of the wild uh, brother who was telling me, you know, you, the way you said it the other day was plug in the amps and start playing a bit of rock and roll. Exactly. And whatever you yeah. do, do not dis disappoint me, George. <laughs> you said that from the very beginning. I'm, I'm here to make sure that you don't disappoint me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, can you, can you imagine if, if Fury Road wasn't what it is. I mean, I mean, it, it's fantastic. I mean, I worked on it and I was blown away by it. <laughs> and, and just to finish, that Nico was my, my quiet sort of guru brother who's telling me, <laughs> taking me through. Let's just look at this much more carefully. See, yeah. Let's see what's happening down here. Well, so it ended up being a really strange mix. And then, then I had my brothers and sisters who were working in the production of the film and then I had in post-production Margaret Seixel who basically echoed Brendan. She was the editor of the film and had a massive task and she said, my main job here is to stop you embarrassing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> she did in fine style. She's but, uh, the other co-writer almost. Yeah. There's editing. a sort of, I, th I think the essence of a Mad Max film is the sort of, you know, there's the Joseph Campbell mythological stuff, but there's also Demolition Derby, you know, there's, there's that side of it as well. I remember a critic once talking about uh, Mad Max 2 saying, talking about the delight in destruction in the film. And I think, yeah, you know, you know when a little boy has got a toy and he's going, <laughs> there's that element in George's work that I think <laughs> I've got to keep, I want to keep that. Respond to. Well, when we were talking about doing this event and discussing Fury Road, we sort of came up with the three, I mean, George, you prompted the three main questions that motivate you for discussing story in any way, shape or form. 
And I'd like to kind of pose the three questions to you all and, and just discuss, you know, why do we make stories? What would the world be like without stories? And why make this story? Okay. Well, I'll try to... A huge, huge <laughs> question. I think we could be here for such a long time and never even really get to understand it because at the bottom of it, all great questions... Uh, ultimately are about um, humanity and why the hell we're here, what's, is there any purpose and so on. Um, I think, the, just, just backing, backing up on that, I really think in this collective endeavour we have as humankind to understand why we're here, uh, it usually starts with, with a great question. And, I ha I'm not the first to say it. A lot of people argue that the greatest question ever asked, uh, particularly in, in, in recent times, was Einstein's, which was, what would the universe look like if I rode on a beam of light? <laughs> and he asked that at 14, and he answered it effectively in a real-world way at 28. That was a great question, and that led to a question, another powerful, powerful question, which was um, uh, what happened before the Big Bang? Utterly unknown, and, and, uh, and I was very happy that one of my sons asked me that after he heard about the Big Bang. And then the question, which it never occurred to me, it's not quite that order of question, but is, is the second question, is what would the world be like without story? Because the more you dig down into that question, uh, the, the, the more is revealed. Um, and Nico said that there would be no world without story. Singularity. And, and if a person... Even if a person standing still takes one step, there's a beginning, middle, and end mm. of that story. And even if they're standing utterly still, depending on your point of view, there is still a narrative. So everything has a narrative. But the key to it, the key to it is that it needs an audience. It needs an observer. There is no story without somebody to observe it. You watch your cat, it carries in its DNA so much programming, so much information. Its narrative is written for it, except it, it, at least the blueprint is written and the way that it interacts with the world uh, uh, it makes up its narrative. But, it, but you need an observer. The cat is not aware of its narrative. Um, so, and, you, and, and that applies to to everything, and, and so you end up uh, going broader and broader on that question, and, uh, and you get into the great stories, the great mythologies, the great religious traditions, the great sci scientific narratives, uh, which I think ultimately uh, 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 where, where the great hope of humankind is in, in this bewildering adventure. Um, and, and so story uh, is, 
something that is deep, deeply ingrained in us as individuals and as, as a collective. I mean, you talk about it as we are hardwired for story, and it's true, we are hardwired. It a, it's a, feels to me like it's a form of communication or more than that's a language that by which we give to each other packages of, um, of um, I like to think of it as me packages of meaning from which we can complete or take the next step in our very own story. Um, uh, in other words, I'm in the middle of a story, I'm in, in my own story and I have a whole number of, of uh, choices about what I do in a particular situation next. And um, what stories give me is that essential information, that sort of, um, um, uh, it's like, it gives me the benefit of future opportunities, of the multitude of choices I can make, and I can see what the result of them are, because they do have ends. And on the question of this story, why make Fury Road? With, just without making this too long, you've got a different theory. Do you want to get into it? Um, I'm a bit too jet-lagged to uh, <laughs> no, okay. really be coherent about it, I'll be honest with you. Well, <clears throat> well, why make this story? It starts at, at a one, way more mundane level, uh, and that is... Uh, an idea came, and I don't know when it was, I remember where it was, I was crossing the street, and I said, wouldn't it be great? Oh, it was, it was almost a question. What would it be like, or, 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 or could we make a, a film which is almost a continuous chase? And how much can the audience apprehend from that story in terms of character, relationship in character, the world, the backstory, and, 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 and so on. And that the MacGuffin, the thing that everybody's in conflict over, should be human. Because in, to some extent or another, uh, we are all commodities, basically, of our, of, 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 in the world, to some extent. So what if... What if the cargo was human? So there were five wives that came in the first instant, or five women fleeing, and they had to obviously be fleeing a, a, a tyrannical warlord, uh, and they needed a champion who had to be a road warrior, but it couldn't be uh, a male because that's a different story, and Max gets swept up into their problems. Max, who wants to avoid everyone else in the world, cannot help but get swept up in, in, into, this, into this chaos and, and to this conflict of wills. And that was the basic idea. It's, it's a very, very simple idea. And, and, and like every other idea it's driven, for me that's ever come to me, it's driven first by the story or the mechanics of the story or the potential of the story and then 
it's driven by an opportunity to use the evolving technology of cinema, which is evolving so rapidly. Cinema is about 120 years old, and to use the new technology, the new digital dispensation in something that we once worked on three decades before. It felt to me that it's not that story, that particular story, uh, the chase, the race, comes from somewhere else as well. And I, I felt very strongly, and that was because of the study of the structure of this story, that it represented a, a very basic need in way beyond George that somehow he had tapped into uh, a kind of a psychological or really deep need in the sort of zeitgeist or in, in, in like a psychological constellation that he was representing. And so it should be because he's working in, in a field that is public and, and not only uh, his, your movies are public, but they are of, of a high concept level. They're very, very out there. And so he was... I felt that I needed to find something essential there. And, and I think that George has found this Mad Max thing is like, it's almost like the eatable thing. It's like a complex. It's like a constellation in everybody's psychology. Um, we could argue, we could talk about that for a long time, but um, about what that particular psychology is. But to me, it was always about, I went right back to the first movie and remembered that he lost his... It's about loss. It's about the response to loss. And the response to loss was Max, just like he is sitting at the beginning of Fury Road. He's sitting there looking at the planes of silence. He's sitting there. His wife is dead. His child is dead. He's a father that isn't a father. He would like to be a father. And he's got the mask and he's got a choice of whether to grieve but he doesn't. He doesn't grieve. He doesn't honour the dead. He, take, he projects, he sublimates that feeling into vengeance. And I feel it's got something to do with that. And so apt today. I mean, you know, we've got the Middle East, for example. So there are a whole lot of uh, psychological kind of elements, forces, drives inside that story that represent the world, it's an allegory, but not just an allegory of the world, political, political and social, but also an allegory of the world that is very psychological and deep within us. And that's why I think why. Can I just say two quick things? Don't want to drag it on, but two quick things you asked at the beginning is why do we need stories? Very simply for me, it's that we live in a world which there's a mass and mass of, of information and basically we use stories as, uh, for survival. We're looking for signal in the noise. We basically use stories for coherence. Um, and in many ways we're attracted to allegory and simple stories because, uh, as this is, I mean, I always say that this film is forward to the past even though we go to some... Uh, post-apocalyptic future, we're basically going back to a medieval, dark age dispensation. And so the allegory is very obvious and its connection is very obvious. And so 
you know, it's no surprise that uh, even the early Mad Maxes were described by the French as Westerns on wheels and basically did have the same function as, as Westerns. And stories ultimately are about survival. The greatest stories are about... Uh, about uh, sorry, they are used for survival. Classically, the, the first peoples of Australia, the, the, uh, you know, the pedagogic value of the story basically is, maps out your world, tells you how to survive, where the water is, where, where the food is, and so on and so on. And I think we do that still in, in, our, in, 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 our, in, in the modern world. And sometimes, and dare I say a lot of times, uh, stories can also be dangerous. And I've, al I've always been aware that we should have a little label on our stories, uh, mm. hazardous material, um, because they can be. We did a big call out for questions around the world to be submitted for this conversation. Um, we were overwhelmed with responses. It was really a, a, an enormous amount we had to go through. Uh, we've selected the ones that we think can evoke some new angles for discussion around Mad Max, and we'll be asking these questions. I'll be asking these questions of the three co-writers now. Um, to Brendan, uh, I found Mad Max Fury Road dramatically satisfying after a single viewing, but simultaneously the film is so rich in small details that I kept finding new parallels, arcs and interrelationships, even after seeing it nine times at the cinema. Did you intend to create a film that demands to be seen more than once to appreciate it fully? <clears throat> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> There was a quote of Brendan's from the art book. I don't know if you've seen the art book for Mad Max. It's absolutely gorgeous. But there was a quote that he can't remember giving that George, Nico, and I really kind of hung on to, which was that, um, that Mad Max is like an epic visual poem where it's beautiful on the surface, you can enjoy it on that level, but the resonance goes much deeper. Mm. Um, so this was in your mind from the very beginning, yeah. discussions with yeah. George. Yeah, yeah I mean... Um there's a, you know, there's a kind of core story there for me. And um, one of the things that happened is what we thought the story was about started to shift as we worked on it. And by the time it came to the end, you thought, oh. And it was something that George told me would happen because I kept going saying, George, George, what's the ending though? Like we need to sort, you know, should we not have the ending and know where we're going? And I said, he said, no, just relax. There'll come a point when the characters will start to live and they'll take us to where they're going, if we're doing our job properly. And I wasn't familiar with it. I'd never written a Hollywood screenplay before. And I said to George, you do realise I haven't written a Hollywood screenplay before? And he says, don't worry, I have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, OK. <laughs> but um, that's what happened. And, um, you know, to me, um, when I saw Fury Road for the first time as, you know, a, a, somebody in the audience watching the movie... Um, it really struck me that it was um, the, the theme, um, it was like change where you're at rather than looking for the promised land. You know, that really came to me, you know, when the end they, they reverse and go back to the, the only green place they know, which is where they were. But in the destruction of the warlord and the liberation of the wretched who join them as they go up, 
you know, this whole revolution that happens, suddenly that oppressive place has become the green place. And I thought that was the really, the great message of Fury Road, is change where you're at and stop looking for a place out there, you know. All the different ideas that this film explores, so I ran through a handful of them at the beginning here, just that I had noticed and read about, were they all consciously embedded, or do you find yourself surprised by things being revealed that you hadn't consciously placed there that come up, or it has been rigorously constructed to include all these elements? Any of Intuition is a method. So maybe it was all there, but there was a, also a, an, a, a, a rigorous attempt to orchestrate those moments and give them some kind of shape by acknowledging them, that they were there. So there was a lot of acknowledgement going, a lot of recognition, a lot of searching for what those moments were, as you described them at the very beginning. And there are many, 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 many more. And they, all, they are there, but I, I think it, it did require us, and I think maybe that's what we saw on the screen, is that we had the time, the luxury, of finding them uh, and amplifying them and putting them into some form of orchestration, some sort of shape, whereby they had delivered some kind of meaning. Yeah. But, but, but everything in this story had basically derived from some real-world experience, whether it was from history, an object seen somewhere. Uh, it was, we were like magpies. Uh, the important thing about the process was to make sure that everyone involved in the, the design, uh, and there were so many people, you know, from wardrobe to vehicles and, and so on and so on, all worked to the same design principles, which are very basically um, uh, a, uh, uh, everything is basically found objects repurposed. B, you had to be able to source what, whatever those objects were, indeed even language, from next Wednesday when the apocalypse begins. And, you, and so did you notice language itself is, is found objects repurposed as is gesture. Um, and C, we, we had this notion that just because it's the wasteland, it doesn't mean people can't make beautiful things. And because if you go to, no matter how impoverished a culture, even early, early Paleolithic man was able to do those beautiful rock drawings. Um, you go to the poorest township, say in South Africa, and they'll take plastic and Coke cans and wire and fashion them into beautiful toys. Uh, and, and these people, to some extent, had time on their hands and anything that survived, whether it was a steering wheel, a foot pedal, a car, would to some degree be either fetishized or basically seen as a, as a religious artifact. And that, that started at the very beginning of the process. Um, the chastity belt that the women wear, I saw in Venice, the museum in Venice exactly, well, not exactly like that, but probably 15th century. 
uh, but very, very similar to that. It was one of those brutal things I've ever seen and stuck in my mind. And the idea was just with one image, one prop, you can, you can tell a lot of story. You get a lot of bang for your bucks. No one has to explain. Mm. Well, that leads into the next question we've been submitted about the level of detail and the decisions in, in design. The question to you, George, is, is there any significance assigned to the particular choices of grey-black face paint for the war boys? Um, just, just that the, the, the grey-black and very, uh, with, very, uh, with variations is basically the, the, the war boys have some sort of neoplasm, some sort of disease going on. So they're, they're designated half-lives. So they're going to put all their effort into dying, uh, into some warrior afterlife. So they already are fashioning themselves like skeletons. They don't tattoo themselves with living objects. They tattoo or scarify themselves with, with uh, car parts because car parts outlast them. Um, and, and, and so... If you're a, a war boy or a half-life, you'll paint yourself white and uh, you'll uh, form some sort of skeletal look. We, from the original drawings, if you look at Brendan's original drawings of the war boys, they were much more decorated mm. and we kept on paring it down. That was one thing I learned about this movie. As, as time went on, um, you know, it was simplify, simplify, simplify mm. because it's a very spare world. You don't want to clutter, you don't want to create visual noise. And knowing that the movie was going to play so super fast that you had to make it... make it So colours were muted. If you look, the, look at it, the brightest costume is the Doof Warriors and, and so on and so on. Uh, you know, so um, I haven't answered your question. What was the... Oh, oh yeah. And then, and, then, and then those that, like Furiosa, and we call them the... Uh, imperators were full life still, like Max is a full life um, uh, uh, and no one really picked it up and what, one of the most gratifying things by far when you make a movie like this and goes out into the world is to, is to get reviews and people stopping you and talking about it and you realise just as Brendan hoped that people are reading a lot of Iceberg Under the Tip and, uh, but no one picked up the fact of this half-life, full-life thing. But if you look at Furiosa, the imperators mark themselves by putting that black on their usually shaved skulls. Um, and if they start to get sick or whatever, then they have to paint themselves in, in, in white. And, uh, mm. so. and that's why the war boys are half-white? That's why, yeah, they're, they're half-white. Yeah. Just quickly as well, can you please tell the story of that reviewer, the Japanese reviewer, the, you're talking about the, the reaction that he had to the film that was so pronounced. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, you, 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 make, you make stories and you really don't know how they're going to be received. You, you, don't, you, put, you put everything you know, all your skills and wisdoms, and you'll never master this process anyway. Uh, and and you and you put it there, and then, as we were talking about audience earlier, you really don't know what you have. Often it takes about five or ten years, if it does impinge at all, to really understand what the story meant. And that's what that's the key to this: that 
that all narratives have to be in the eye of the beholder. And I must say, I've never had quite a response to any film we've made as we have in this one so quickly. Um, and a, a Spanish uh, reviewer uh, said to me something really interesting uh, not two weeks ago. He said, you realize now what, because just rarely, rarely you talk about a film uh, except after the first week or so that it comes out. And he said, you realize now that this story no longer belongs to you guys, it belongs to everybody. And I said, uh, and he's really referring to all the fan art and everything that was coming back. And, um, uh, and I said, oh, did, did, did Joseph Campbell quote had a marvelous quote from the Zanzibar, Zanzibar Swahili storytellers who would say, this, when they finished a story, they'd say, when the story, they'd say, the story has been told. If it was good, it belongs to everybody. If it was bad, it was my fault because I am the storyteller. And I, I, and I realised that's the process. I didn't know, you know, uh, what, you know, what a Mad Max was like until people like Brendan turned up and, 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 and so on. Anyway, cut a long story short, um, it's getting, it, 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 it gets, it, I, I get very uncomfortable, or not uncomfortable, um, uh, 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 sort of feel responsible when I get stopped in the street and someone will show me their Immortan tattoo or <laughs> their, uh, you know, Furiosa tattoo or Max tattoo or Nux tattoo or a car steering wheel tattoo. And I was in Japan doing a review and this critic uh, 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 who was English speaking said he read the movie so deeply beyond the, anything that I'd even thought of myself. And I thought, wow, this had such resonance with him. And I said to him, how did you, you know, did you, did you pick this up in one screening? He said, no, no. He said, he did exactly what you did. And I've done it with the great movies in my life. Is, uh, uh, he said, no, the moment I walked out of the cinema, I asked the distributor, could I go and see it again? And then I walked out of the cinema again and I went to a tattoo parlour and he, sh he took me aside and showed me his shirt and he had the Morton's logo <laughs> tattooed on his chest. And I thought, oh boy, I hope, <laughs> I, I, I hope this movie lasts. <laughs> Brendan, can I ask you a question moving from sort of ideology to something slightly more primal? Just the, the phantasmagorical madness that completely infuses this film. Yeah. It feels like it strikes quite a different note to the preceding three. Um, I've followed your work for a, a long mm. time and, and I can see the link up sort of taking what exists in Mad Max world and then sort of wide-screening the madness almost. Can you talk a little bit about... Because the madness isn't po-faced either and we've chatted a little bit about this. There's a sense of its own over-the-top ludicrousness right. as well yeah. that keeps it very compelling. What I love about the Mad Max films, and they're my favourite kind of world, you know, I prefer the world of Mad Max to that of Star Wars or uh, Alien or something, is I really like... There's an incredibly dark humour in Mad Max, you know, like really quite sick, but I, I like that. And... Um, the boomerang and the hand. 
Well, you know, and also just tonally, just that, say, the film Road Warrior, or Mad Max 2, you know, you've got a very, quite a hard-to-take rape at the beginning, shot through a, a telescope, so, so it's grainy and it looks like reportage, which makes it more real, it feels real. And I remember when I first saw it going, you know, that kind of feeling, thinking, Christ, I hope those guys don't get me, you know. And then... Later on, you've got a guy reaching for a silver boomerang and his fingertips go off like a a kind of Chuck Jones, you know, cartoon. And there's this massive veering of tone in a film. And I'm thinking, it's the first time I'd ever really got a movie which, uh, you know, the the, the sense of a confident swagger in it. And it's sort of coupled with this sense of an underlying coherence, whether you understand the logic that's underpinning it there is a logic underpinning that complete insanity that's engulfing you. That's, that's the most important thing, that it had to be very rigorous, otherwise it's just noise. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, I often talk about movies. You know, I start, look, but bottom line, I'm still trying to grapple with the silent cinema. It's where the language was first defined. When people first saw a close-up of a head turning in the cinema, they screamed because they thought it was a disembodied head. Now, a little kid can read a movie or, or moving image before they can read a book. So it's an acquired language, it's a new language, and I'm with Kevin Brownlow, who wrote so long ago, the parade's gone by, Basically, the language was defined pre-sound because sound locked down the camera and it took a long time for the technology of the camera to allow everything to move. And now we're at a time now where the cameras are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, so there's a whole thing uh, uh, about about that. Um, But, uh, so movies are getting faster and faster, but in this movie... Uh, uh, well, I say all that because it is a kind of music. It's a visual music. And particularly, it starts in the writing. It certainly started in the storyboards. The problem with storyboards, they carry... Well, the great thing about storyboards, they carry enormous amount of information very, very quickly to to everybody working on the film. The problem with... Sorry? I was just going to say, just to add to that, that in, in in the... uh, call sheets we gave out every day on shoot, the, the, the storyboards to be shot that day were, were, were included. That's how important they so were. So everyone knew who was in the screen, blah, 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 where they were sitting, the stunts and so on. The problem with storyboards is they miss what I call the fourth dimension, that's time. And when you miss time, there's no real narrative. That's, that's probably... A silly thing to say because, of course, we read books and, of course, we read graphic novels or whatever, but there is implied time in those. So, but in the way that a storyboard can, is constructed, it's a different thing than a graphic novel, quite a different thing. Okay. Uh, so, but when you get... You, you, when we started, when we wrote, and then finally you confronted with the editing room, you use exactly the same process and language that a composer uses. The, 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 the great thing, and a lot of editors don't understand, there's a great thing about working 
with Margaret Sixall, who happens to be my wife, is she under, understands emphatically that there has to be a powerful causal relationship between one shot and the next to make the space, the film space coherent. Just as a composer has a very powerful, the great composers have a powerful causal relationship, one note to the next. Chord progression, tempo, tonality, melody, light, all of that almost gets to a mathematical level. And, and so you can't, it's not chaos, it looks like chaos. And one of, the, one of the things that you must hang on to is that everyone must work to the same logic. You must be able to explain. We, we talked endlessly about that. We talked about it. And when our work as writers and, and illustrators and designers was handed over to the crew, that came up, uh, that came up time and time again. The guy, everyone, you know, Doof Warrior, um, he's very logical. Uh, he's... he's um, uh, everything he, on his guitar is found objects. There's a hospital bedpan, in, you know, in the middle of it. Uh, um, like everything else in the story has to have dual purpose. It's both the guitar and a flamethrower. And, <laughs> and, and, so, and he is exactly the equivalent of the bagpipe player, the drummer, uh, the bugler before there was amplified sound. So there is a logic to absolutely everything. Just to make your point, that liberates. When everyone shares that logic, it in, liberates everybody to do what the hell they like. Um, Paul Jacock, a wonderful designer I've barely ever met, uh, we said we needed Max's muzzle, the one he's wearing right now, and, and he put a garden fork on, on the front of his uh, muzzle. I didn't do that. I didn't ask him to do that. But he said, well, I could found objects repurposed, garden fork. <laughs> Brendan, you have a question for George about directing style and what you've noticed as a change or yeah. evolution. When I saw Fury Road, I noticed, um, you know, one of, the big, one of the big things you've done since uh, the Mad Max films is you got into computer animation and, you know, brilliantly with Happy Feet. And doing a lot of CGI myself, one of the things is the, the, what, what you can do with the camera is totally different in a way with CGI now to um, uh, live action stuff. And those great big um, camera sweeps in, in um, Happy Feet, you know, where you can go from, you know, really wide on an Arctic landscape and track right into the eye of a penguin or something in one move because you can just do it with a computer. I started to see that in Fury Road, the big tracks over um, when they're all caught in the canyon, you know. Um, although you'd done it in Thunderdome, you know, with the opening shot, uh, you know, the aerial shot down on the... But uh, the shot, you know, just the shot where they're all heading after... There's that great big aerial shot as you go over Immortan Joe's car, you know. So uh, I was just wondering if you feel that... Doing, directing the animation has now sort of changed how you view, direct the live action. Uh, I think it, I, I hope it has, because um, you hope that you're learning your craft as you keep going. And um, there are two, two influences uh, on, on that observation. Uh, the first is triggered by um, 
you notice I live my life by other people's quotes, and the, one of the quotes from <laughs> Polanski was, um, uh, there is only one perfect place for the camera at any given time. And it wasn't until we got into Happy Feet where you could take exactly the same performance, the same voice, the same movement, the same characters, the sa everything, the same landscape, and just by changing the, where the camera was and the, the syntax of the cutting, you could take, you could change the scene significantly. And it made me really aware of the Polanski dictum that you, you, you really have to think about where is the perfect place for camera at any given moment. Now, when you're doing a live action movie, it's quite different than animation because the live action movie, animation, you've got time to cerebrate and figure everything else and you can, it's, it's an intellectual exercise more than it is ultimately an intuitive exercise, even though it's highly intuitive, but, uh, but when you're shooting a movie, it's, it's, it's like a wildest game of football. You're right there on the field, you have no time to reflect what your next move is going to be you just simply have to respond purely on intuition, right or wrong. Mm. And you tr you're doing it as much as you can in the moment of preparation beforehand to put the, put the camera there. In terms of the sweeping shots, uh, you know, technologically, even if I had the wit to do them in the past, uh, they weren't possible. Even 10 years ago, one of the benefits of the delay we didn't have a wonderful thing called the edge arm, which is a, which is a, a, a big four-wheel drive with a big crane on it, and everything is remote, and you've got, a, you've got a, a brilliant driver, stunt driver, you've got a crane operator with toggle switches, a camera operator, tilt, pan, focus, with toggle switches, and there you've got the director sitting there with a screen in front of him and that camera can go in amongst all those chases and swoop right out of the dust, inches off the ground, right up over the vehicle in, into the face of a character. And it can do it almost real time. It's like literally living in the middle of, of, of a video game and couldn't do that 10 years ago. So right. both those things definitely right. came together. And until you actually mentioned it, I'd never really thought about it. Mm. Nico, you have a question for George about yeah. the, um, does he run the movie in his head? Yeah, I would come into the uh, Mad Max room which, where we worked and um, I would see George almost in a reverie, just kind of quiet and I would walk around and you just completely uh, focused somewhere internally. And I, and uh, I think I asked you a couple of times what that was, and, and you, I would like to know to what degree do you visualise the story or the movie in your head um, at different times? Uh, do you, and, and do you actually visualise even edit points? Uh, do you visualise the entire movie? Do you try to hold on to it? Is this, some, is this part of your discipline? Um, um, when I speak to those actors, Hank Azaria is one and Lee Perry is one here in Australia who do all those voices, 
They can mimic voices absolutely perfectly. Both of them, who don't know each other, said to me, this is from the animation movies, said to me that until they were about seven and eight, they did not realise that... Uh, they thought that everybody could mimic anybody's voice. Now, these are two actors who can literally... I mean, Lee can mimic the Queen perfectly, can mimic me perfectly, you can pick any, anybody and do that, and the same with Hank Azaria. And a vaguely similar thing happened to me where um, I got to the point in, in, in my life, uh, and I don't know where it happened, where, uh, and I remember you said to me, Brendan, ah, I know how you work. You conceive of scenes, the whole of a scene. You think in whole scenes. And until you said it, I wasn't even aware I was doing it. Now, I'm sure a lot of people do that if they had enough time to do it all their life. I've been doing it all my life. But I've got to the stage where I see whole scenes and they play out. And it's usually in unguarded moments. And why? I kept on pushing Fury Road away. Never wanted to make the movie. And then I was a long flight from uh, Los Angeles to Sydney over the Pacific one night. And in that dissociated, hypnagogic state, the movie played out in my head. Not like on a screen, but in, in my head. And, and, and that's when I realised there was some sort of gravitational pull to this story. And, and I told Doug and, and everyone, I think, we'll be making a Mad Max, and that was back in, uh, back in, back in the day. Uh, and, and, and I think there's a kind of a Geiger counter that draws you, uh, draws you to, to, to story. You feel the potential. You, mm. you feel the energy radiating out of a scene. You see, ah, oh, there's real potential in there. Now, what I see in my head and what I finally get to see in reality could be completely different things because reality always gets in the way. And that's when you get in the cutting room and you, you end up with the editor, Margaret, saying to me, whatever your intention was, that's not necessarily what's on the screen. We have to deal with what's on the screen. Mm. And, and, and so on. But there is that. And, I saw that in you. I mean... Uh, uh, yeah, look, the spirit of what you did early on with the storyboards is almost, as I've said before, it's like I didn't see it again until I saw the final edit. It's like they're perfect bookends to this process, this long process. The spirit of what was in the storyboards was the same spirit that was in that film, but, final but, edit. Uh, before you say that, I saw... Brendan do something remarkable one day. We worked a lot on whiteboards. And, and Brendan had, had uh, started to draw and he worked from one corner like a scanner and doing the shading and the outlines and everything. And he scanned the whole of the whiteboard and a whole image came out with lighting, every detail. And I said to him, oh, and... You do something that I've never seen before. You actually project, I think you project, the image on the screen out of your head and then you fill it in. I've never, ever seen that before. Wow. We were always taught to draw, you know, the shapes, the four, yeah. get your compositions or whatever. And even, you know, I was recently in Europe and seeing, um, seeing the work of the great masters, Rembrandt, 
you, you, you know, Nightwatch, that epic picture, which was, you know, they x-rayed it. They found he was struggling uh, as to the foreshortening of a sword, the handle of a sh- sword, and he had about five attempts at it until he finally got it right. And somehow you don't do that. It was very interesting to me. Yeah, well, sometimes you get, you get your form because you've been drawing a lot and you just sometimes get into the mode where it's just going really fast and really well. And then you, you know, next week you lose it. Just, just a real quick thing, I didn't answer one thing. Um, when a scene plays in your head or an idea comes along and it's good, you never forget it. Mm. It's, uh, because it's such a rare thing mm. that it's really, really mm. good. And, uh, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to be good friends with Guillermo del Toro and oh. I, I saw him. Uh, we, we had a lovely uh, chat uh, not a week, a, week, oh. a week and a half ago and we are talking about this very thing and we used to talk about keeping notes and you, I'd keep endless notebooks <laughs> and then at the end of a project uh, I'd forgotten, I'd never look at them again and I'd forgotten and you, and you realise no really good idea is ever forgotten. Mm. And he said, yes, that's exactly, I don't even look at my notebooks anymore. Mm. Mm. This leads to the next kind of question that was submitted that I'd be really curious to hear the answer because obviously the film has been in development or the first idea sketch 1997, it was released in 2015. To what extent is the movie that we all saw the same as what you originally envisioned way back at the beginning? Did advances in technology have any effect on what you wanted to show or would the film have been the same if filming had gone as planned in the early 2000s? Uh, I'll have to answer that. Um, The, yeah, this is, this is a, everything is evolving, including cinema and film language, audience, and how we apprehend a film. It's changing, like all cultural practice is evolving. And, and, uh, and what's really interesting is that, um, you know, just take, for instance, uh, well, I'll take two things. One is camera. Um, back in the day of the early Mad Maxes, if we put a camera in jeopardy and it got smashed, that was a quarter of a million US dollars. The f- budget of the film was 350,000 <laughs> US dollars. So you imagine how precious those cameras were. Uh, by the time we got to Fury Road, uh, the main cameras, the Alexa cameras, are still very expensive. But we did a lot of the movie you saw on, on the ca- Canon 5D. And if we smash one of those cameras, which are, uh, we could go to the airport in Namibia and buy one <laughs> for $1,500. Wow. So, so that, that's very liberating. The other big thing was that you, you're basically getting it recording on a card. You're not churning celluloid. That's massive mm. to budget. The card, once you download it, it is still there. So, so the, ca- the, the cameras were much more agile. And then, and then in the, the digital, uh, with the di- digital dispensation, you could, you know, th- this movie was shot over 138 days, but it only, the story's only over three days. So we were able to keep the skies consistent by actually getting the sky of, 
you know, a, a sky we like from the first day and keep it going through that whole day. You couldn't do that. And just, you know, the, the tyre marks on the traffic, as you see the skid marks on the tyre marks, you could always tell in the old days how many takes they would do by the number of skid marks on the, on the road. And, and now you can just erase everything, you know, take one, two and, and four and keep take three. Another question that I was interested in as well that was publicly submitted, which was, do the events of Fury Road take place in a dystopian version of Australia or another real-world location, or is it all just an imaginary space in which it takes place? Um, for me, in my, you know, for me, it's, it's a hybrid uh, of Australia and, and a, and a post-apocalyptic world. Um, the spiritual home of Mad Max is Broken Hill and parts of South Australia and so on. We were rained out of there. Uh, the studio, you know, to its wonderful credit, uh, waited for 18 months. It still didn't... Uh, it's the, the, you know, the beautiful flower garden and the green of Broken Hill didn't go away, which, which, which is great for the landscape, but bad for, the, for Fury Road. So we ended up in Namibia where it never rains. Um, but still in my mind, um, and I, I don't know if we've got that, that map. Uh, uh, I think they ha might have that map that shows the landscape we, we drew, this one here. Yep. Um, that kind of maps out from a bird's eye view uh, the world. And, um, and that world, which includes the Citadel, Gastown, the Bullet Farm, a place we call the buried city and the, and the green place that was once there. Um, uh, that to me is in the centre of the Australian continent, a vast island continent. And it's now to some degree hermetically sealed. And so when they talk about the planes of silence and satellites that once sent stories back and forth, um, they have no idea of whether there are any more coastal cities or are they just raised and the population gone effectively. They don't know, there's no, you just need enough gasoline to get across that unknown. So in, in this world, uh, just to enforce, I guess the, the, the allegory of it, the mythological nature of it is, is a contained world, at least in my mind, and that world is the center of Australia. Well, speaking of this world, Nico, you unpacked this world and went a little deeper and wider based on George's stories with the comics. Um, and you had some questions for Brendan transitioning from screenwriting to comic scripting about the use of time and how you choose what to leave in and out of imagery. And there were some interesting kind of conversations you were both having. Yeah, um, I was interested in, well, Brendan asked me how, I'd, how, I, how it worked with comics, and I uh, fortunately had Mark Sexton, who took me through the whole process, but I had a terrible difficulty with this thing of time because I couldn't, couldn't work out how to create change. And I had the problem of creating change within a single panel. And, uh, and then Mark kind of uh, talked to me about how the whole timing thing is different, whereas in film it seemed to be much more causal. Uh, in a comic, you have 
You can reflect. Your time, the time is your time, not you're not taken through it. You can look back at something and you can... So, so it seemed that time was a crucial element in the difference between the comic and a film. And I wanted to ask Brendan how, what kind of choices he makes within storyboarding about what moments to choose within a narrative. Um, well, with storyboarding, in the end, I'm working for a director and the director's going to make the choice. But, you know, you're going to talk about it. When it's a comic, yeah. um, I'm operating on a, different, a completely different art form and making different choices, you know, about um, what experience I want to give the reader. So, you know, so... So it's not necessarily a narrative experience then? Um, it, it, yeah, it's a narrative experience, but I may not want to deal it out as if I'm representing a film yeah. in a comic. But when I'm storyboarding, I obviously am representing a film. So yes, I must do it, certain compositional things, and, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. And so what moments do you choose to... Um, like, if you've got a scene, what moments do you choose to, uh, to illustrate? In a comic? Yeah. No, in, a, in, in, the, in the storyboard. Um, Could you, for example, have used more panels to tell the story, like 5,000 instead of 3,500? Or could you have told it in fewer? Um, You could, both ways. You could either do it fewer, and I have worked with some directors who don't want... They almost want keyframes rather than more analysis of the movement. You get some directors who actually want more analysis and it would have been 5,000 frames. But I think the balance we had on this one felt, you know, like intuitively right. We weren't... Sometimes you get... For example, in comics, you often see with new... People that are doing comics early in their career will um, spend too much time on movement, like somebody getting out of a chair might... You know, they might do every movement. And you think, crikey, this is going on a bit, you know. Um... (laughs) So you've got to know when, like, what's the relevant thing? What's the bit you're after and move on from it, if that's what you want to do? Yeah. You know, if you've, got, if you've, say, got a lot of dialogue, say something's got an internal dialogue going on about whatever it is, you may actually then drag out somebody getting out of a chair just oh, to yeah. kind of carry the dialogue, you know, so... Okay. Sure. Yeah. Did you say something about you choose the most... Uh, Dynamic moment? Yeah, we were talking about um, comic panels, and I'll either choose the most dramatic or the least dramatic, you know, and in in a way, anything in between. Why the least dramatic? Because I might want to um, convey. It's like the silences between. Silence, or I might want to convey. um, I'm not sure, or, you know, stuff like that, you know. More nuanced in a way. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. The last question that was publicly submitted, George, which of the characters was hard to get right on the page? Is it hard getting character without resorting to dialogue? And which character arc was the most easily completed? Uh, to, to answer the last first, uh, the, 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 for me, the biggest character arc is Nux because he goes from being a fanatic devotee of the Immortan, convinced that 
this is his day to die, historic on the Fury Road, and he's, he's disabused, life disab or the events disabuse him of his belief system, and then he has, and, and, and then being, being someone who has very little time makes the choice to, to, to make the most of what he's got and then basically relinquishes his, his own self-interest in, in the cause of a greater good. So that, that's a very obvious arc in that character. Um, Furiosa, interestingly, and, and Charlie's performances is, is, is one that doesn't have a, a, a big character to arc because she's in many ways mysterious uh, as we're getting to know her. And it's only when she is crushed by the events that we actually get to know her. And then Max uh, has to give her uh, hope. Max's story, Max was difficult because, um, you know, we don't have many words for him. And he, but, but his arc is, is one of uh, going from essentially a wild animal. He's behaving exactly like a trapped wild animal, literally trapped, and bit by bit, uh, he, increment by increment, he actually acquires his language, his humanity, his, his ability to regard another positively, and ultimately to give of himself. And as Brendan points out, giving his own blood is, um, you know, uh, for, for another is, um, you know, is, is a big moment. Do you remember that scene where Max penetrates her with a knife and then gives his own blood, to me, was them consummating. This is these two, you know, crazy warriors and, if you like, making love. Um, and uh, do you remember, I, I, I don't know if you remember saying, but you wanted that scene to be like a post-nuclear gone with the wind. Do you ever remember that? <laughs> Don't you remember that? Great image. And I think, I think, to me, that scene absolutely paid off in that film because everything's so, like, held back all the time. And finally, these two that you really want to come together in the craziest way possible kind of consummate their relationship. And it's, it was like... Uh, I was very moved by it and... I felt that was the point for me when Tom Hardy absolutely became Mad Max, really. At first, you know, he's got muzzles on, he's, <coughs> you know, he's like that all the time, like a dog, you know. And then finally, he's there, absolutely. And it came at the right moment. You know, the whole thing, the Venn diagram, as you called it, absolutely came together in that point. And that, that love story is so... Um, uh, calibrated throughout all in action, a look or the handing of uh, the telling of the, the kill switches, a point of trust, the giving of a rifle, another, another step forward in trust. So it's, it's all there in action from, from two people wanting to absolutely tear each other apart and kill each other to wanting to to what you say, you know, consummating a, a relationship. But the interesting thing about it, it, it's love in the agape sense, it's not love in the eros sense. It's love in the, mm. in the positive regard of another. 
and the, and that's you know the, one of the big tricks with these movies is is where the, is is sharing out the dramatic real estate. You can't have the same arc for each character, and when you've got a number of characters, you try to give them arcs. You can't have Max do exactly what Nux did, or you know. Furiosa do do what Harrod did, or, or, or so on and so on. That's one of the juggling acts as we thread this through. We talked a lot about that. Um, I don't remember God of the Wind, but you know, I probably said a lot of things <laughs> I've forgotten. Yeah. Well, that oh, okay. There was a there's an actual concept art I did oh, with Matt Max oh, holding oh, it like that. Oh yeah. And oh no, that you mean the poster of God with the Wind, not the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly, that, that, yeah, that image. Yeah, and that, oh, yeah, that I was remember informing that, that scene when he holds a, yeah. the... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, no, yeah, I remember that. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the most crazed Gone with the Wind version you can think <laughs> yeah. of. Oh, well, is that image they shot on the, on, on, on the, uh, on the, you know, on the stage in Gone with the Wind where, you know, the tall um, Clark Gable and the, and, and the d- diminutive... Um, uh, Vivian Lee, he's over the top and there's that red sky and that tree. And if you look at the optical, it's distorted, but it's still a striking image. It was always in the yeah. poster. Yeah, no, okay, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> and just before we wrap up, Brendan, you saw the film in its first form, sort of in the cinema with a public audience. Yeah. Um, your reaction to Max leaving the Citadel and Furiosa, uh, it was wonderful to kind of hear. Can you talk a little bit about what you thought? Because the ending sort of happened after you'd gone, hadn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I had a, a slight difference of opinion about... In the original version I wrote with George, he goes up on the platform with her because he's found her. And when I saw the film, I didn't... I'd actually purposely kept away from looking at too much about the film because I wanted to experience it as if I hadn't seen it before. So I'd experienced it as a punter, you know, paid my $10, here's Fury Road. And um, I thought, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) I was really like, uh, and I was was kind of, you know, honestly confused and annoyed and thought, what's what's he doing? Why is he going back out there? She's, and then she's gone. uh, You know, the platform wipes her away and then it's blackness. And I'm left with this feeling of, wow. And then the that quote was the love up. of your life. <laughs> it was a strange feeling because, um, you know, we had a chat about it the other day. Just, because uh, I, I totally expected him to be with her going up, you know, he's going to take part in this new society. And then off he goes again. <laughs> well, when, when, in your long absence, Nico and I decided <laughs> that, d- decided that... <laughs> Max hadn't earned the right to go there. It's only been three days and he's not yet resolved at all. He's on the step to resolution. And somehow it would have been, and we, we tried, but it would have been very che- cheesy had he gone up there and they lived happily ever, ever after with the children. That would was have still the been a passenger on her, her journey. But he didn't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> he did not deserve it. He's got a bit of work to do. <laughs> can thrash it out in the sequels. <laughs> Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it here. It's been an absolute honour. 
ladies and gentlemen, the co-writers of Fury Road. One of the greatest kind of breakdowns of like what Fury Road was, what it represented, uh, talking about mm -hmm. the the themes of, um, you know, George Miller's idea of like uh, the, the the key element being humanity, you know, mothers, milk, yeah. you know, that that kind of thing. And so that actually prompts, you know, because now 600 days out, it's, it's actually where I, I sort of crack my knuckles. I'm like, this is what, what I love. Mm -hmm. I love having nothing because the mind can go everywhere. Um, there's some triangulation we can do, some deducing. Um, you know, uh, Anya Taylor, for example, um, she has one of those things which some people have, which is the quality of being able to be any age. She could she could be de-aged a bit to play the younger, so that we could see her in mm -hmm. maybe those I don't know cage fight. You know, if if we're if we're applying maybe that sort of Conan the Barbarian template of him having that wheel of pain experience, you know. Um, yeah. uh, yeah, that snatched away as a young age. So, so I think she'll be able to, to do some of that stuff because that's what we see actually a little bit in um, uh, Queen's Gambit as we see her at an earlier age. Uh, they, they obviously get a, a much younger actress to play her as, yeah. like a, as, a, as a kid. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if this thing, and I know I'm going to actually change the countdown graphic, I was going Fury as a Mad Max story, but I think George is just so set and like it has that much clout now with wb's like i don't want the word mad max i think people can do that 5.3 yeah. second google to uh, to to find out that it's a mad max thing so it will just be like in your videos the word furiosa in chrome yeah you because know? that's yeah that's what i know i mean essentially the film does not have mad max in the title that's to me that's i mean i mean th this this whole thing is kind of weird to kind of difficult to pinpoint because it is a spin-off but at the mm. same time, it's so tightly connected with the with Fury Road and Max's story that yeah. it's kind of difficult to like. What is it exactly? I mean, yeah, it lives in the same world as Mad Max, but at the same time, it's like somebody completely different. And I yeah. mean, it's not completely different. It's it's this different character that we follow, and people expect Max to be in mm. this. And I'm like, no. I'm, but at the same time, yeah. But it's like it's this ambiguity that's always in George Miller's movies that kind of it, you know it does my head in sometimes. But yeah. Mm -hmm. I can. I mean, I, well, they'll work I mean, around I mean, it. I'm sure. Essentially, I'm just going to stick with it being Furiosa. That's right. They might, if they want to <laughs> really not give a fuck, Furiosa, a, a Mad Max universe story or whatever. I think, but it'll be just Furiosa for sure. Um, yeah. And a um, couple other things from the filming. Uh, we just saw, got a report there, and you said we would talk about it. Um, the uh, the excavator. I have this again theory that there's going to be. Because, um, you know, excavator guys, like people who really know how to wield an excavator are insane. Like they can like light a yeah. match. So, yeah, so super I, precise, I, yeah. Super precise. So I was wondering if we might get like excavator fencing or something like this. There are two of them <laughs> going along and they're just like swinging these things and like ducking might and like be. slashing and clashing each other. Like that's something that's never been on put put on film before. So I love Mind's Eye, Mind's Eye Cinema, wild predictions. Um yeah, man, I, I can. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, that definitely ties into something that I was uh, just researching today, because um, mm -hmm. you know I basically just go out of my way to talk to people who work on those movies and you know and work on this one. Very good. And I was researching on the uh, on this monster truck, this this Mac monster truck thing, and I found the guys who work on it, and I'm like, yeah, and I actually know what the car is based on now, and the um, it's got those huge cranes. Those huge, I don't know, crane tow, uh, towing arms, mm -hmm. what they're called. Yeah. It would be cool if we actually had a battle between the rig and that thing with those arms, people jumping from one to the other. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. Just an yeah. idea. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely going to see a huge battle. I mean, I don't want. I don't. I'm not sure if you want to hear a lot of spoilers in this. Oh podcast, no, go ahead. This is because you got to tell me spoilers. when I should stop. Complete everything. Okay, everything's, so everything's yeah. Good. yeah. Okay, that, well, I gotta be careful though. But uh, there's definitely gonna be a huge battle, and I mentioned it in a, like a year ago in my first Furiosa update video that mm -hmm. Furiosa is gonna lose uh, her arm in that yeah. battle, and she's gonna do it herself. Mm -hmm. That's gonna be brutal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like, I mean, that's I've flashed this picture of this movie 127 hours. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh yes, so you know what the, the, so you know how that ends. It's grisly. So you know. <laughs> Right, so mm -hmm. that that right, mm -hmm. uh, so that's what's gonna happen, and there's gonna be a lot of battles. Definitely, there's a lot of like, I mean, they brought in like, I don't know how many bikes. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I only accounted like thirty bikes in this video that leaked uh, a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. but uh, I believe who was it, Guy Norris? He's, I think he's back, and he requested like hundreds of stuntmen. So I don't know what they're trying to do, mm -hmm. and if they had already filmed all this stuff, which they, they could have um we just didn't even notice uh, because there's a lot of misinformation that's also a thing about following this production there i know for a fact that they have a person on the crew who's deliberately misinforming the media oh and seriously they, that's amazing yeah they that's yeah so good that's yeah that's what they do i mean there's this one person putting out news about stuff and i sort of like compare it with the people the people that i know and they say oh well you know that just that's not true that didn't happen and that stuff like this and like okay so that's all just misdirection and so they might as well have filmed a whole lot of stuff that we don't even know about mm. you know there you go out in the open that is amazing uh that uh, that ratchets up the hype even more I don't know if it's something that's in you and i's like dna or, or bloodstream or whatever but just the idea of it doesn't matter, especially with this era where everyone's just focused so much on what's coming out and what's being pumped out to us right now. You and I live yeah. in this kind of bubble of like, no, no, it's 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 Mad Max. Like there is, there are yeah. truly, truly so many directions this can go in. It's the wasteland is, is three yeah. is, is, is 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 um is uh, three sixty. It's um, for me. I get I get my producer brain on. I have a podcaster brain, artist brain, and also producer brain. And and yeah. what I I definitely think is uh, first of all, if Corey Barlog gets to finally uh, like he, we don't know what he's working on. He's he stepped away. We just recorded God of War just before this actually. Uh, he's stepped away. Eric Williams is doing a Ragnarok. And if I mm -hmm. if I was on the ball with my prediction about him finally getting to make that Mad Max game then yeah. the insanity would would be just because the idea of cory barlog doing a few like and it would be frioza i i think they would have to like this would be george getting to finally have his name on you know the mad max one you know avalanche uh i think it was softworks whatever their um their appellation is um you know i i, I fired it up the other day i posted some images mm -hmm. to my twitter it's like chum bucket all of that very very cool but as you pointed out in your video, you you started your video very well, which is like it doesn't have his name on it, and Miller, yeah. right? So we need that master, Doctor Miller. We need that. Yes, that absolutely. Component. Yes, yeah. this is something that this franchise like desperately needs. I mean, this is an. <clears throat> it's also something that I'm a little bit. <clears throat> excuse me. It's it's something that I'm a little bit worried about because mm. you know George Miller's age. Mm. Uh, so who's going to take over? And so mm. far, whoever has been laying their hands on the Mad Max franchise, they. They, they, I mean, I wish they, they, they had done a better job. Mm. And it's like it's evident in, in mm -hmm. a lot of things, in a lot of media, in a lot of 
um, like merch and stuff like this, except for, you know, the stuff that are just so tightly connected with George Miller, for example, like uh, Mark Sexton, Nicola Thuris, you know, uh, or the people who worked with um, on the comic books. That stuff is just like deeply connected. So, you know, yeah. this is quality and this is that's what it was meant to be. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I'm hoping that. Actually, I'm hoping that when, if we're going to get a game, which is going to be connected to Furiosa, that is going to be a completely different story. Um, yes. I mean, it could be connected. This is something that probably Warner Brothers would want to connect mm -hmm. this film directly to the game with Furiosa and the game. But I think George Miller has a lot of stories. For example, we could like maybe have like a game that, I don't know, about the Doof. Uh, the Doof? The Warriors. Doof? No, yep. I don't know. He, he's one um, of the characters that has a complete backstory too, you know? I have an idea. Is you go Furiosa the movie is a prequel, but Furiosa the game is what yeah. happens with Furiosa after Fury, Fury Road. So well, but we actually we, see that in the comic books. Well, basically, <laughs> but but also like but but to sort of have that grow, and then we can see like because oh. that's one thing they they do is is uh, with some, with certain source material you can like take because a comic can only tell so much, um, yeah. uh, and that's going to be and also WB they really do have the potential in them. They're doing Hogwarts Legacy, which is the dream come true. Like everyone wants Hogwarts Legacy, but for Mad Max, you know, potentially to create our own Wastelander, potentially. I mean, I mean could, the, could I mean, you imagine that basically, right? Yeah, um, well, I mean, as long as uh, they understand the, the source material and they're not reckless with it. And yep. um, because this is something, this is a gripe that I have with Warner Brothers in general. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of like weird decisions that you know yes so to speak they rocked the boat and they i just wish that they had somebody who would really supervise all this stuff mm, just so mm. that they would not accidentally leak some things because they i mean you know you know what happened with the game right i mean yeah. they spoiled essentially who the main villain is in the game yeah and yeah. that was five years before they even started filming the movie and i'm like okay guys come on you gotta like <laughs> i know yeah. has a lot of material but you know, slow down a little bit, maybe consult before you actually start putting all those things in the game. It's one of the reasons why George Miller's name is not in the game, and he just sort of distanced himself from that. And yeah. I wish that they had somebody who'd really, like, supervise that kind of stuff, you know, like, in depth. Yeah. Do you think that because of that, um, you know, the game, and, and you pointed it out in your video, I'll actually cut to it now, that thing about, you know, the gasoline tank on the back of the of, of the interceptor, like that was left specifically because of the game, etc. Uh or, or removed or whatever. Um it was so, the spoiler, the real spoiler. Yeah, yeah, the spoiler, excuse me. Um I think that because of what happened with the game, I think that would would have basically prompted uh Miller to to pivot. You know, Dementus doesn't I mean, I I, I don't know, like, you know, I sure he, I'm sure I'm sure super early on they gave some visual notes and stuff but do you think what happened with the game has led to Furiosa's um some of some aspects of Furiosa changing to sort of be different from what the game you know yeah you I think yeah. so yeah mm. I, I think so because people are already noticing certain things about it and I'm you know and I'm sure those people who have not seen my video they don't have to I mean mm. they just notice character names for example I'm you know just reading the comments on my YouTube channel and people are like oh wait this guy's name is Dimension that's a name that I haven't heard in a while and they go back, oh, it's, he's in the game. So all of a sudden, they just realized, yeah, this character is in the game. So I'm sure that some things will change. I mean, mm -hmm. 
I mean, we. I mean, if you want to discuss Fur- Furiosa and about you know the movie in depth, I mean, we can do this. I, I want to do that. This podcast, <laughs> I can tell you <laughs> oh, everything well, about it if well, you want. I really, would, yeah. But, but, well, once once um, we jump off, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll I'll edit this elegantly so that that isn't even alluded to, because I would okay. like once we once we jump off, Ben, just tell me everything because you know. Let's okay. Go yeah, for it. Yeah. Um. But but okay. All right. That's and that's valid. I think, uh, and I'm glad that I'm not the only one thinking that. Which is that, you know, they, what happened with yeah, they the game? Should. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, they really, they really should do something different because there's a lot of those things, a lot of those little things just scattered around in the game. Um, where else? I think it's only in the game. Uh, some things are in the comic books as well. Some things are alluded to in the comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, they're, they're really hidden well in the comic books, though. And there the game go. is just out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you, if you talk to, I don't know, um, Kyle Buchanan, uh, he wrote the book, um, what was his name? Uh, the... Uh, blood um something chrome blood and chrome yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the story of fury uh, the fury road yeah, yeah that's something like that. so he basically was asked this question um some time ago about the game like what person to, you know well, how much how much furiosa is in the game and he said well a lot uh locations characters uh, stuff mm-hmm. like this you know and he just didn't go into detail about that so yeah the game is chock full of those things and you know yeah. But it doesn't. I mean, like I said, it doesn't make this game bad. It is. It is a good game in its own. It's just that I wish they did some things a little bit different. But you know, mm. I, I mean, I mean, you you are working on a game, right? You're yeah. Game? So, so basically, a yeah, quantum myth. Um, where uh, in the stages of um, putting the story bible together and and reaching out to mm-hmm. devs and stuff. Um, we're actually kind of assembled mostly through Instagram. Um, and uh, Unreal is really versatile. I can just say, hey. Here's a couple. Here's like five examples of what I'm looking for, and then that person can can do a mock-up. So the first game's called The Hero, uh, you know. Okay. Just again, once again, introducing that sort of um, uh, sort of timeless, um, uh, you know, Campbellian journey, and it's about sentient yeah. metaphors. I'll send you the PDF. I think you'll like it. Okay. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I am familiar, and I've I've been steeped in it. And the one thing though is because I know Guillermo del Toro. Sadly, because of the bad luck he's had with his things, he said I, I've sworn off games because anything I touch in the game sphere it just falls apart, including the mm-hmm. Norman Reedus thing. Brackets. I think Norman Norman Reedus belongs in a Mad Max something at some point. The guy is a fucking Mad mm-hmm. Max character, so that's just I'm yeah, putting that out is. there. <laughs> he is. Um, but I really wouldn't want Miller to be so soured because of the game experience that he no longer mm-hmm. wants to. Because, I mean, that is so damning, the idea of him just yeah. not even wanting his name on it. So I really hope the years passing oh, no, no. since... Oh, yeah. I, I just want him to be like, you know what? Enough times pass. I think we've got this brand new team. And I, I want to actually pivot away from the Mad Max character. Let's have a Furiosa game. Um, that would be interesting because I would love, for example, like a tutorial section in like the Green Place, and then to have the things unfold where then it precipitates. Yeah, and all of a sudden, it's raided. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so all, it turns yeah. from like yeah, what yeah. is it, Harvest Moon into like uh, oh, yeah. Doom. <laughs> and, oh, well, definitely. And actually, you've made. Thank you for the segue. Also, the Shez pace, the Shez pace of podcasting. This is my comfort zone. I like this. I, let's okay. let's be let's be energy drink, energy energy drink buddies. I like that brothers from other mothers. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So I I love the idea of um, and not in a franchising kind of way. Like let's have Immortan Joe plushies. None of that. But I do uh-huh. find it interesting to 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 you know. I had a, there was a game a long time ago. I will challenge myself to find the title of it. But it was an old CD ROM game, and it was it, it was a post-apocalyptic age of empires kind of thing you know an rts kind yeah. of thing we have mm-hmm. one of warner brothers with their templates of um dune where they're doing dune spice wars and stuff 
you know, there's there are some components of like putting an armada together, putting that citadel building, all of that. That could mm-hmm. be interesting. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't be averse to something like exploratory and experimental and meditative to do with like wandering the wasteland. And I've always been curious about when will we find out? Like you know, Griffa uh, alluded to this indigenous, undiscovered indigenous aspect, which we you know here in Australia, oldest living culture lots of pride in that and and i would love the notion of of suddenly pivoting tone wise into this uh you know maybe heretofore unknown or undiscussed community of like actual australian indigenous uh people who um uh you know keep to very basic spiritual ways they they um they stay the they stay the heck out of you know the crazy people going mad with their guns and gasoline and stuff like that um so that's something i would love to explore like a journey type title um what give me mm-hmm. some give me some of your like shem Shem, Shem space kind of ideas of uh, of what you would like to see from Mad Max going forward. Oh, um, it's really difficult because I was I was thinking about it um, a while back, and mm. going forward, I don't know where we can go from now from Fury Road. I mean, okay. Fury Road essentially was designed as a final Mad Max film, and mm. so the setting and the story and everything that happens in this film is just sort of like the culmination of Mad Max. Because, yeah. I mean, George Miller did not, I mean, he always says this, he does not expect to make another Mad Max film, but with this one, he really did felt like mm. this would be the final Mad Max movie. That's why he wanted to bring in George, I mean, um, Mel Gibson back to play to play the role, and they they, yeah. they even had him for a while for hefty amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure where you can go from there. So it could be either even worse in the entirely of in the entirety of the wasteland, or it could get a little bit better, kind of mm-hmm. like in uh, Beyond Thunderdome, where you can see the civilization sort of like rebuild. Um, but I don't know if things are progressing that di- in that direction. And we're talking about Beyond Thunderdome, where we have like toxic storms and and people are just, just trying to survive as a civilization. Where do you mm. go from there? So I'm thinking maybe, and I'm not gonna say that you know we should just have like a prequel kind of a this or that or something in between Mad Max one and two. Mm. Um, I think the explanation of what happened between Mad Max one and two is good enough on paper as it is. Um, Although a lot of people want to see Max as a character who just sort of starts wandering the wasteland where he gets his dog from, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And or maybe, I don't know, the gyro captain's backstory, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not really that much into this. So it's really I mean, the way George Miller is 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 shaping this the series is good enough for me because it's always like something that comes out of completely like a left field. And mm-hmm. and it's like I mean I was not expecting to the, for this new movie for Furiosa to have so many references to um, Greco-Roman um, like oh, ancient yes. culture. Um, this is something that I just like wow they they really went there and it's also tying in with Ben Hur which is tying in with George Miller's um, you know basically you know his history as a as a filmmaker that's where it mm-hmm. all began like you know he started watching all those old movies and and it's also Australian culture as well so it's like this weird combination that he somehow figured out which is totally weird and different and i don't know it's like every mad max movie is weird but weird in its own way and i don't know how to do it any better than him <laughs> well that's so well stated um i think that 
the only way to that that you can bring someone else in you know Brendan McCarthy first of all that is one of my favorite stories of like I was just he was there he was wondering what ha- whatever happened to Mad Max and then I think in in a huge part thanks to him there was that poking that that so he he understood it was almost like he helped George Miller realize what Mad Max was and then there was that catalyzation of as his crossing the road and coming up with the the story outline for four mm-hmm. um uh so my only my only um the possible kind of um, uh, timeline that i would like that that i could see as like going down that 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 would end well is if um you know you hear about story groups or something that that for me i just like what they're doing with alien now they're putting everything into this gigantic encyclopedia in the next like few months um i think oh. they want to maybe release it for like uh, alien day next next year uh it's it's massive and i've ordered it it's going to be great i would love for them to to you know have some fun with maybe really opening up the different eras um you know uh of of since the cataclysm since all of that like to to, to look at maybe mm-hmm pockets of time where you could have someone like a young Brendan McCarthy kind of a uh, kind of character or kind of um you know creative you know showrunner type thing and that kind of leads me into the the idea potentially of um uh, of of something maybe the wasteland project which is was envisioned as a film and you, you there are articles out there here's some headlines of him saying you know furios are in the wasteland but what if we recently got again from wb they're like we're not going to do further fantastic beast films we're actually going to do a series that bridges from fantastic beast 3 to to harry potter so and they've got gotham you know for batman and stuff so there and sisterhood for dune and stuff so i actually think it's almost inevitable that there'll be uh, and and the thing is with something like the post-apocalyptic you could i mean that stuff is scrappy it's meant to look ru- like used and stuff it's not like there's too much budget there with with um uh you know and and some of the star wars stuff i'm not too very not too impressed by a lot of the star wars stuff nowadays but it Never certainly either. proves yeah oh god it certainly proves though that with the volume you know uh with with using stuff like that you you could you could make something compelling at least um yeah. but it, but it, but you're absolutely right it, it should never be to the dilution of 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 exactly. the name of the name and, and I, I would want it to only be additive only be additive yeah 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 i mean yeah sure. there's i mean there's definitely a lot of different ways that this 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 thing whole this whole thing can go and i don't know i just wish that it goes in the right direction that's all i really am wishing for i mean Me the, i mean if you've noticed that you know the people who are fans of the mad max franchise I mean, the franchise in itself is so solid, even mm. including Beyond Thunderdome, that people just latch onto Beyond Thunderdome as this black sheep of the series. When, when mm-hmm. in fact, it's not really that a bad of a movie. It's it's a, it's a good movie. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at it, you know, I mean, it's it's I mean, it's wonky a little bit, you know, in some places. But overall, you know, I just I don't know. Maybe I just learned to love it over time. But to me, oh, yeah. it doesn't sound like a bad movie. Mm. And a lot of people say that it is, but it's not. It really isn't, you know. No, so, um, there's an outrage economy yeah, now, I mean, buddy. Even, Do you remember? There's a misstep like that, yeah. Do you remember the days the when we did we didn't have the um, outrage economy, the the clickbait, people getting angry oh. on purpose to 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 get oh clicks? Oh my god, I miss yeah. those days. Oh, I like <laughs> that. I like that. You know, we can we can remember the old days together. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was way better. I mean, just just looking at the forums, like Mad Max forums, it was a place where people would just go in. I don't know; it sounds elitist and all that, but back then, no, if you fine. really were into Mad Max, you had to go out of your way to go there and to mm-hmm. talk to people and contribute something. Right yeah. now, I mean, anybody can leave a comment, 
And that yeah, also cheapens. comes with its own caveats, right? You yeah. know, yeah, it's just like people walk in and just say stupid things like "No Mel, No Max." Like, dude, you don't even know that Mel didn't <laughs> want to be in this film since Bad Max Two. I mean, the series. So yeah. you're, you're expecting him to come back? Like, it's not really gonna happen. So I mean, it doesn't really take that much of a, you know, no. consideration but, just to not post stuff. But okay, people do but, it. Anyway. But 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 what I will say is um, I actually think there is a, an interesting way to do stuff like, um, for example, in Mad Max, let's say, not, not let's say, let's fucking manifest it. Furiosa, now that the, the, the cultural presence of Mad Max is, you know, you Google Mad Max now, just like how God of War invented, reinvented themselves. Now when you Google God of War, the old games don't come up. Actually, the new title comes up when you Google Mad Max now. Yeah. Boom! I'll just show you a screen capture. It comes up with Furiosa, sorry, Fury Road, because it, it was this rebirth, this reestablishing of itself in popular culture. Yeah. Uh, the teal melting into the orange, you know, like it's so iconic now. Yeah. Now yeah. that that has been affirmed and reassured, and there's there's not that question mark floating around of like, is this the, will this work? It's been hailed as one of the greatest films of all time. I I agree. Yeah. It's 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 a perfect pursuit film. I think if Kurosawa smiled somewhere when it came out, like it was just very much this timeless, you know, um, bit of filmmaking. Favorite character, Nux for me. How about you from from Fury Road? Um, I don't know. I mean, oh, yeah? I would say probably it's it's probably it's probably going to be Max. I think yeah, because okay, cool. of <clears throat> of the. I mean, I'm just like off the top of my head because I was thinking a lot about, you know, Max's situation at the beginning of the film mm. oh, and yeah. how he, you know, wh where, where he ends up at the end of the movie. I mean, it's it's standard, you know, uh, you know, the story of a man who's broken and then he um, basically finds his humanity by helping others, you know, like uh, mm. engage to heal. That was the, their motto when they were making this film. So mm -hmm. that's one thing. But I also find it fascinating how broken he was at the beginning of the film and what he was planning. I mean, those are things that you can find in some like books for example the in the uh, the art of mad max you can actually read there's just like little bits of information that he was planning to go out there into the plains of silence oh yeah and i'm like okay the plains of silence we know what that is that is nothing that's nothingness that was a suicide mission Basically. i'm like oh my god he was really trying to kill himself yeah and and i'm like oh shit and this is one of those things that nobody really talks about how he was really really broken i mean they really tried to show this in the uh uh, and the, the the storyboards and the panels, the, the, the original concept art, how broken he was. And mm -hmm. that part of him I find really interesting because this is something that I probably should make a video about because I was thinking way too much about it. But um, it, the progression of Max's insanity over the course of the trilogy mm. is very subtle, but it's there. And it was way more uh, present in the, in the script. For example, I mean... In the script for Beyond Thunderdome, we got scenes of Max going insane mm -hmm. uh, out in the dunes, which mimic the scenes that we actually got to see in Fury Road in the war rig. Uh, and they're pretty much like a carbon copy almost of that, except we didn't actually see that in Beyond Thunderdome. So I'm like, yeah, there was definitely yeah. a progression of Max's insanity. And we ended up there. Like, we holy did. shit, this man is about to kill himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this guy is hearing voices. And he like he forgot how to speak, and also this this I mean I'm sorry I'm rambling, but there's no, this I one love thing that uh, people just <laughs> yeah there's this one thing that people completely misrepresent. Uh, I mean people completely don't understand about uh, Tom Hardy's uh, uh, you know version of Max is that oh he does not know how to do the Australian accent. He's not supposed to. No, this is a man who's been out there for such a long time he forgot how to speak. He forgot so who he, he is. Yeah, and his accent is way off. Thank so, you. So, so that's one of those things that people, 
Yeah, that's I want to read. I want to read you. Just sort of like, oh, he doesn't know how to yeah. act. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're just like again, once again, it's the the sad truth that people basically deliberately omit readily available, easily available information just so they can construct an outrage narrative. It's it's really bad. Yeah, um, this is yeah. yeah. This is uh, George Miller's own notes. The warrior boy Nux, in need of a tracker, on the Fury Road, selected the slave dog Max. The slave dog, like that's how far he just yeah. basically became an animal, chaining the dog to mm -hmm. his wrist. Nux drove mm -hmm. off down the Fury Road to find and kill his former commander, Warrior Woman, and return to his the six to his beloved warlord. So that idea, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. what a powerful Fury Storm blew in the sa the slave Max overpowered Nux in the ferocious wind, unable to sever the chain. Mad dra Ma Max dragged Nux out of the storm and stumbled across his means of escape, Warrior Woman and the six girls. So the um. That's yeah. Anyway, this whole thing was was me saying, look, um, we have uh, you know we have this the different eras, and I please actually can I, I'm happy to patronize it a bit. Like what you just mentioned about you know Mad, new Mad Max Bible video, um, Mad's Max's descent to into madness. I mean, there's your title there. Right? Yes, that that's there exactly go. what I was wanted to call it. Yeah, it's, okay, it's excellent. Literally <laughs> one of my, yeah, it's literally one of my documents. That's what it's called. Max's descent into madness, or. You know, I cannot wait. Like, yeah. I, I will, I'll jump on. I want to send you, like, I want to actively support you with that, mate. I oh, will, I'll... absolutely. Yeah, true. By all means. Yeah. I mean, there's Please. a lot to be discussed here. I mean, I cannot just have those ideas bouncing around mm -hmm. in my head all the time. I mean, yeah, uh, you got to so, let them out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing. And, you know, and I mean, there's so many things. I mean, dude, you're obviously a huge Mad Max fan. That's, huge. I can tell that. So we can talk about this stuff for hours. Ever, forever. By all means, <laughs> we can. I mean, I have so much time right now. I mean, if you, if you right. have the time, I have the time. Got so, to jump back um, on. Yep, go for it. The, the, yeah. So the Nux, I mean, uh, about Nux, um, I mean, a lot of people, they don't realize how young he was supposed to be. I mean, we're talking war boys. Yeah. But when he was cast, he was, I think he was like 17 or, or maybe 19. So he mm. was still young. But then, you know, there was this postponing of the, of the film and he would, you know, uh, ventured into his 20s. But the care, I mean, the character of Nux was supposed to be a child, like a teenager, yeah. a very yeah. naive teenager. And that's one of those things like, you know, and it's, it's, it's also mimics uh, what was gonna, what was supposed to happen with the first movie. Mm. Um, all the characters, those cops, they were supposed to be teenagers. I don't know if mm. you knew that about this, but it was that was that's what George Miller wanted to do. I mean, teenagers, Max, you know, Jim Goose, uh, all those, you know, Sarson Scottle, all those people, they were supposed to be kids, essentially teenagers. I mean, part of it is because George Miller's own experience, um, like in real life, you know, with with his friends, teenage uh, friends dying on the roads, he wanted mm. to sort of transplant that into this weird reality of Mad Max. But that would just that would not. I mean, he he couldn't find those kids anyway, mm. and the movie would be a little bit weird. And you know, he needed a proper actor, so he just switched over to Max. I mean, to Mel Gibson, Mel, who was yeah. already twenty-one anyway. So he was still a young kid. I mean, mm. let's be honest. I mean, he, when you're twenty-one, you're not really that. So, um, so yeah, that's one of the things. I think that's one of those those themes that they just keep going through the series, like young kids doing stupid stuff, getting killed over over this. Yeah. And Nux was one of those characters, I think, you know? Mm. You just made me want to pivot right back now that, because what you've said has just fed a little bit of Furiosa speculation. So what we see is a very taciturn, very um, disciplined, almost samurai-like warrior woman. Um, she really embodied it, you know, Chelly's their own in, um, in Furiosa. But what will be really interesting is, because we see, again, we have reference points for um, 
you know, Daniel Taylor-Joy in various different roles. She really does know how to unleash and really kind of like show these. Uh, she's basically very talented. I've seen her in The Witch and all mm -hmm. of this. I think it's going to be very interesting to see to, to see what she does. But um, I am always fascinated by like just the arc of how someone went from one place to who they became and what really catalyzed that um just to freshen it up from last episode because i was giving some speculations about like how it seems as though she would have had to make a great sacrifice of some kind maybe even kill someone oh, yeah. she loved there's 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 all kinds of directions and then particularly i wanted to get your your hot take on uh immortal in, in this film um mm -hmm. go for it i mean what what direction could you what how, how do they not Un undo this mythologization that we've had of of you know um, Hubert and Keys you know um as this villain oh, like how, what what oh, do they uh, how yeah, do they what? oh well how do they not undo it how do they not undo just by it? not yeah. showing him by not Ooh, showing him I think I think it would be better if he just basically existed as this vague figure in a castle that okay. just instructs people and you don't know really who he is but he is powerful. I like and that. everybody who walks up to him it just i mean uh, in the in the leaked um you know the the stuff from the the leaked footage from Colonel, you mm -hmm. could see that everybody's just looking up i really believe that this is a scene where all the gang just sort of like pulls up to the citadel and they're looking up at the immortan's lair or whatever it is and we don't get to see him we only get to hear him maybe mm. and that's i think that would just feed into Very this powerful this mythical character that he that, that he yeah because you know less is more you don't that's this that's the thing with george miller he understands this type of stuff like you're not supposed to show everything in mm -hmm. that way I've, I've always been i've always been saying this he's the opposite of george lucas who needs to have a fucking opening crawl <laughs> explaining space taxes for a movie and yeah, with, and with this and with and with mad max series you don't need to i mean the, the whole world is built Mm. behind the scenes and we only get a glimpse of it and everything is in that glimpse you can just pick it apart however you like you know that's mm. the genius of of george miller and how he constructs mad max movies and i think making immortal that character that's just this vague figure somewhere out there mm. and he's so powerful that you don't even get to see him i mean we already know what he looks like anyway so you can just jump into fury road and watch that but yeah i think that's the way to go if you want right. to keep him like this mythological focus powerful. Focus more, and I love that. Focus more on Dementis, and then have Immortan be this looming threat, be this something that like Dementis maybe gets like terrified by, like just um, yeah, like to almost build uh, and enhance what we eventually see. Because for me, you know, I have I have gripes here and there about a lot of the Star Wars stuff, but with some of the at least some of the aspects of Rogue One, I actually thought that they were handled pretty well. Like when I think about how um, you know when he's in that trench going and trying to like destroy the death star i actually have this notion of like a team like it wasn't just the the insane unlikelihood of him having survived being this farm boy who's never flown and x-wing all of that all those basically odds against him in the back of my mind i actually do think about wait this is also this the fact that he's even here with this chance is because of this whole team of people and it actually adds yeah. a bit of emotional weight to me for me you know that mm -hmm. you know and, and the galen urso stuff so what i hope is that we have uh, something where the next time you and I, Shem, uh, we'll, we should have a screening at some point if you come to Australia. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> next time you and I sit down and watch Fury Road, um, we actually, we keep up uh, post, can... like, after watching Fury Road, like, it actually enhances that experience. 
Yeah. I mean, we could actually like watch this thing on, I don't know, you know, remotely and deconstruct yeah. the movie just watching it, you know, over the internet. That that would work too. Let's do uh, it. But also go yeah, we can do that. And um just going back to this this idea that you said, you know, that, you know, George Lucas um I mean, the Star Wars series was greatly sort of like I would say saved by people around him because that's mm-hmm. what you said, right? I mean, yes. That that basically the, the there's a lot of people working on the series that basically just guide the series in the right direction. Apparently yeah. now in a good direction because I don't I stopped following. But yeah. anyway, um, this I mean it's very it's very similar. This is something that you kind of learn just by talking to people who are who work with George Miller closely. But um, he also needs this direction, and uh, sometimes it's like if he, I'm, I'm thinking like if with some of his ideas like if he had his way with the vehicles with this you know design and then there was no colin gibson around oh my god like he would have no he, no <laughs> i mean like, the vehicles would look totally different everything would like for example like even the vehicles like with brendan mccarthy what he designed for the film um they're spectacular designs but functionally no no just no that does not it's not going to work they need no, a peter pound who yeah, actually understands the mechanics to you know to to actually make something yeah to actually make it work and look cool, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah so it, you know it's always a collaborative effort. It's uh, an alchemy. A lot of people and it's just like George Miller also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, so you know you you gotta have you know a lot of different elements for it to work. Mm-hmm. And George Miller is no exception. As much as everyone calls him the, you know the the genius, the the madman behind Mad Max, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of truth to this, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, there's also a little bit of. But you know, a madman for him to on his own some errors. Let's be honest. It, exactly, you said yeah. it perfectly, Shane. A madman on his own. Sorry, not compelling. A madman where you, there's people around him trying to herd him and then getting him into like that's that was George Lucas having. He actually wanted to do three Death Stars, I believe. Um, I'm not kidding. Oh. Like, and, and he wanted you know Adventures of Star Killer, the Chronicles, the big long title, and then they because mm-hmm. he had that you know that that those cr- critique energies around him and obviously he he said that he was miserable but that it's so far i'm sorry but that misery on your part led to this perfect combination of like practicality you know uh you know i can't remember christian someone the 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 set designer is like look we can't custom mold this thing like i just have to grab and he grabbed Mm -hmm. like a a torch shaft and then added a few bits and bobs and then that was a lightsaber so yeah. That's yeah, and and then Marsha Lucas, who shares DNA with George's wife, definitely of just being these incredible, like, you know, these these women who can edit these movies, this madness into this beautifully mm-hmm. sequenced. Um, you know, uh, I think you pointed it out really well about like why it's actually. Um, oh, actually, the, I mean, there's a couple of different channels. I think there was one. It was the. Um, I'll cut to a little clip now. You've probably seen it. It is the guy who says uh, the making of Mad Max Fury Road was a shit show, right? Oh, yeah, I've he, seen that one. Yeah. yeah, really good. And he talks about how like Marsha specific or not Marsha, uh, Gabriel, um, specifically edited so that the eye wouldn't be needing to dart too far across the screen. Like it, mm-hmm. it was beautifully done. So yeah, the center, yeah, the center screen editing. Uh, yes. Yeah, this. That's yeah. That's what happened. Uh, by the way, what do you think about editing in Fury Road? I mean, in, in the context of the original trilogy. Oh well, the thing is, in many ways, mate. Like um, Fury Road is—it's is, my favorite of all the films. You know, I, I, um, I, I think it's it. It is almost a genre. Like it's 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 this undertaking unto itself. Like it feels 
connected but in many ways i think more more disconnected more separate and and this true distillation and evolution of what mad max was which came out of left field people were like mad max once again just like god of war it's like you're already established in pop culture there is a yeah. version there's a timeline where nothing ever really happened after thunderdome and look you know fallout rage uh, borderlands they'll all always praise praise be to the uh, almighty mad max and it, it had already established there was no calling there was no need for it to reinvent itself this way but i fucking love every every single aspect of of mad max fury road like it's it is tough for me to have any critique at all uh about oh. that um, so so you're yeah. um because i mean okay so let's no, just please like, go ahead yeah, what, go what, ahead. what about the what about the um the the sped up i mean I mean, entire. I mean, I don't know if you've watched this this uh, lecture by. I mm -hmm. think it was Dean Dean Semler. No, no, it was. Um, uh, what's the cinematographer? Uh, Seal. Uh, mm -hmm. What's his name? John Seal, the cinematographer for for Fury Road. Yeah. Ah, man, I forgot his first name. That's but okay. Anyway, Let's. So I'll, he, I'll um, make you. I'll make you look really good in the edit right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. Um, Mad Max Fury Road cinematographer. John Seal, was it? Uh, it is by. Cinematographer, come on, Google. Yeah. One second. Yeah, John Seal. John yeah, well Seal. Yeah, yeah so, you, you got, so you got he, it. You got it first time. Yep. Okay, so so he has this. I mean, he released this lecture where he was talking about the filming of the movie and and the editing process, and he basically said that there is not a single shot in the film that is at its original speed. There's always something changing, like there's a few frames missing, it's some, some stuff is sped up, but there are, certain, there are certain scenes in the film that are so exaggerated, especially in the beginning of the film, and I'm sure you probably noticed this, because yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with movies, and you know yeah. that there's a lot of effort put into the movie at the beginning of the edit, and then somehow some things just sort of fizzle out, and mm. there's a lot of sped up shots and the like first let's oh, say yeah, 30 minutes of the film yeah that stuff and then yeah. they're gone have you noticed that it's just like yeah. not there anymore and uh, you know in the original uh, trilogy uh, at least actually i think it will be just mad max 2 it has mm -hmm. most of those shots those sped up those uh, undercranked shots yeah. it was a practical thing they had to do it because the vehicles were just too slow you mm -hmm. know that kind of stuff but with this movie they didn't have to do it and yet they did it especially with the fight with furiosa and that's just something that i was like okay you didn't, you didn't like it to? okay like All what right. was the point yeah that's no, you know what really, i call that, that? No. that's the that's the um that's the um is it the wabi-sabi it's the, the 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 chink on the edge of the cup that makes the thing this yeah. beautiful object yeah it's like for me it's um it's only it's not too distracting um i guess if you were to say um uh i guess if you, if i was pressed to say anything it would be that um uh uh you know some of the some of the scenes like the the you know after the baby's born like stuff like that it's like dude i don't know if we really need it to see like the oh yeah you know, oh the, the gross the, stuff yeah the gross stuff yeah you know <laughs> but but I, once again i i i totally i fold that into the the internal logic of 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 what they were trying to express and like organic mechanics back by the way like what the fuck that's going to be really interesting oh, yeah he's a well-known aussie yeah, actor definitely. uh here mm -hmm. um uh now I'm back to Furiosa because again, um, this one here, uh, you know, the first one is the road to Furiosa because you know reference to Furiosa. But I actually, I have an interesting title in mind for this one because it's like your Mad Max Bible, your this uh, knowledge bringer, you know, uh, to 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 the masses. Uh, on this front so it's like i felt like calling it the book of mad max or something or the chronic uh the chronicle of um 
the chronicle of the wasteland or something because what i what i my ideal thing with with, with furiosa which i I, you know, we had that thing where some of the New South Wales people got together. They actually was born in New South Wales, so I actually went to see if I could go out there to Broken Hill. Uh, they'd already fill it, finished filming by the time I could like um, pivot around and stuff, but I got to get the contact, the casting director, um, whatever details and stuff. So if they do do uh, the wasteland, I'll I don't know, man. I'll have to probably if I get anything, and I'll be like, can I bring a plus one? And I'm pre- I'm basically gonna harangue you until I get you here, and <laughs> okay. I can I can wear a blindfold around you so I don't ever find out what you look like. Well, <laughs> but you need to I need to I think it's my duty as the Mad Max podcast is to get you on the set of a Mad Max movie one day. Yes. Well, I mean, that would be, I mean, that would be that would be great. Um, okay. I mean, Got I'm it. perfectly fine just just observing the stuff okay. from afar and just just sort of like I'm. That's cool too. But yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, this is one of the things that I have to absolutely do at one at one point in my life, just to visit everything and see everything just firsthand. Mm. Yeah. Um, even though I mean, I'm pretty close anyway for for mm-hmm. for what I'm doing. But yeah, that would be really yeah. Just by okay. all means, try to do that. All right. <laughs> that is now committed. Grateful that is committed yeah. to, to podcasting tape well anyway what i wanted to say is going forward from from here as much as there's going to be um moments where you know it, it i i like to try and not jinx it and say like the filming you know it, it had the flooding but it, it won't fingers crossed it won't nearly be as much of an involved as involved of a delayed of a process as between Mad Max 3 and 4 like between 4 and 5 it's going to look like a holiday compared to what it was between oh, yeah. 3 and 4 um, oh, and don't, then... don't worry about the delays at all like seriously no I mean, of course not I'm not worried at all yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean I don't know if you follow the people on uh, for example like CJ Bloomfield just follow those people on Instagram and see what they're doing like seriously they're really posting stuff from the set <laughs> they're right yeah. now in some uh, sound stage and I'm just looking I was like okay those guys seriously just post videos of the trailers that they're in okay why not <laughs> why <laughs> so not that's what they do like you can look around pause those videos and look at some details so i mean that's i'm not it. worried at all you know the, the the production was just hindered a little bit you know mm-hmm. by those floods but every everything else just keeps going mm-hmm. so there we go yeah. so here, here's the big one is are you comfortable would you be comfortable because right now we have this 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 baby of ours which is mad max it, it is in its own I wouldn't call it niche, but it, it is certainly within its own sort of certain scale of, of, of you know, people knowing about it, the, that familiarity. You have examples of things getting too overbloated. I think Marvel, I think they've gotten a little bit into a bit of mm-hmm. a conveyor belt filmmaking cookie cutter thing. Yeah. And then you have Star Wars, which again, I have issues with my, because I'm very protective of Mad Max. It's it's from my country. I, I really, it's like, yeah, yeah and, and what I, I what I want is for them to be basically to to the the eyes in charge or whatever the 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 big cheeses to to recognize what's being done wrong like with Wizarding World whatever like try and try and make make Mad Max your case prove prove to us that it's like you're looking at what other people are getting wrong and you want to really get this right so I want Furiosa to really like to 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 kill i just i wanted to like by the time it comes out people will be so grateful post pandemic to 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 see this amazing yeah like uh, film and then wow i mean yeah okay keep keep going oh that's (laughs) okay that's okay no no if if you have a thought please go ahead oh yeah absolutely i mean you know what um this is something that i um discussed with with somebody from from the film Mm. and uh people are gonna be definitely polarized uh because i mean 
this is something that I, this, I mean, this is something that I'm, I'm leaving after you know we're done with the podcast. I'm going to be talking about you know the, mm-hmm. the film with you. Yeah. You can cut this yeah, thing out. Yeah, if I'm, you want. I'm cutting this but, out. Don't worry. Um, okay, but the, the people are, are definitely going to be polarized by this film by the virtue of Furiosa being a character that is so like adored by certain circles, mm-hmm. and this, I mean, she became Furiosa became a character that is like um, poster woman for feminism in, in some you know in some way for some people and mm. there it came with a backlash once the fury road comic books were released i'm not sure mm. if you're aware of that but yeah Mark we Sexton, spoke about that who, um yeah. yeah he got death threats over this because people were so upset with what was in the comic books and i'm like no you don't understand this is exactly what mad max is why did you elevate furiosa to this level yeah now, now you're disappointed by this you shouldn't yeah. have done this because and this is exactly what's going to happen. I think this is what's going to happen with, with the movie. People mm-hmm. are going to elevate this character to this extreme level, and once we get to see what she actually does in the film, people will be like, "Wow, mm-hmm. maybe we were wrong. Maybe, maybe there's." God, I hope you know, not. I mean, characters and and I mean, mm-hmm. no, no, no. I mean, not not in the sense that they're disappointed, but in the sense that this is such a multi-layered character that you cannot just put her into one box. It's well, like with all the characters in the Mad Max series. Essentially, you know, but yeah, I mean, I mean, to a lot, to a big extent. Yeah, no, all I was going to say is that Game of Thrones back in season one or two, like they faced a bit of like, you know, a backlash just in terms of, you know, depiction of women and, 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 Mm -hmm. but the thing is, uh, it's, it's right there at the start of the Out of Mad Max. It's, it's neo medieval, right? It's this idea that things have fallen apart to the point where all of that beautiful, progressive, egalitarian respectful all of that has just melted away because otherwise you're exceptionalizing and you're 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 de-authenticizing or you're making the world less authentic to exciting because then you're just singling out two or three characters who are exempt from the rules of that world it's like sorry this is yeah. feudal feudalism and when you when you strip away all of that beautiful human progress what you get is the misogyny you get people using each yeah. other and you get Barbarism, women having like you, it's, it's uh, yeah stone age and it makes anyone who rises the fuck about above that, despite it all, even fucking cooler, even fucking more amazing does, to, yeah. to, to behold. Exactly. So, but you like you can't exceptionalize it because otherwise it's like you're making a, a scuba diving movie, but one character never gets wet, but they're all underwater. Yeah. You know, it's like everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. is in that same environment of brutality mm-hmm. and violence. And yeah. if you're a woman, I mean, eventually, so, yeah. yeah, eventually yeah. each character will have to face a certain decision in the film, yeah. in those films. Yeah. that you will object to to a certain mm-hmm. extent and uh, this actually this is actually interesting because this is exactly what happened with max and beyond thunderdome remember the fight in the thunderdome mm. he was willing to kill and all of a sudden oh shit this is a kid it's yeah. a huge grown child that i'm about to kill mm-hmm. and that that's when you're like oh okay we got to pull back a little so even yeah. though max's character is kind of ruthless and you can see him at the beginning of the film doing all kinds of crazy stuff just to get to what he wants which is mm. his belongings essentially yeah that's, whole damn story arc all the time he loses his stuff and he wants it back mm. and um yeah so that's a but good that was example. a choice i think we should more people i think in general yeah yeah, yeah all yeah, i was I gonna say just accept more of that from the movies i'm sorry yeah <laughs> no that's okay we're having a zoom moment no no i all i'm saying is i is i wholeheartedly agree with you is like stay authentic and i like that the polarization won't come from the content of the story it'll actually come from again i just think we're a little bit mired by um you know over over pc and over cautious uh specific avoidance of of certain you know things depicted and i think that can really uh, erode at the integrity of art and um Mm -hmm. 
it all there has to be this and that's why i actually was like i i would hate if that happened and i would actually love if by then hopefully maybe we've we've done some reassessment of um you know one of the words that makes me cr cringe is this this warping of sadly of of the word woke or whatever and all that um mm. you know they're calling lord of the rings woke of the rings i just all uh, that i yeah, but, yeah yeah i know i know i know what you mean yeah this is well, just like yeah why i mean it's been it's been so i know yeah. i mean i've just just recently i've been on like on facebook just reading some comments and all of a sudden mm. there's this comment that said um i hated that this movie went woke and i'm like dude you don't this movie was written 21 years ago at this yeah, point dude. dude how is it woke i mean it it has I mean, it's just like people just look at this film through the lens of the current like socio-political yeah. climate, and they attach their own like grievances to it for whatever reason, and then get angry over this. Like, oh, why are you? Shem, like, haven't you seen a, a, you know a previous Mad Max film? Yeah, exactly. Shem, what yeah. we're living in is in a, we're in a time where people they bring up their phone and they see their name in their Twitter feed, and then they see George Mad Max, and then they they draw a false equivalency of like, surely if I'm able to voice myself in that same forum where i'm seeing some of these like promotions this false democratization of like no yes. one truly no one gives a fuck but the thing I is know, now yeah, that's the thing yeah yeah but but the thing is now you know sometimes it's interesting with the sonic movies like people got together it's like well that's a that's a fucking nightmare let's change the yeah. design and i think that was good but that's in these specific cases you should for 90 percent of the time same with god of war dune villeneuve he said like we are just creating a bubble peter jackson also did this back in the day he had the benefit of being in the 90s when it was basically mm -hmm. native to those times to that era but now you have to work extra hard to just push that bullshit out um yeah. because otherwise you actually are compromising and uh, and i i love that and it's great we'll talk about it more when we stop recording but um that's something that i, I i'm gonna relish is, is is you know the george millers as long as we have these people saying look we're not just gonna go along with this narrative of like never just eggshell walking and making sure we exceptionalize mm -hmm. and basically yeah, deteriorate the structure because then everything falls yeah, apart yeah. if you so i yeah, hope it stays fucking brutal i think i hope it's a yeah, brutal absolutely, story absolutely should absolutely should grotesque brutal yeah. and and just you know for i don't know forward thinking just, just yeah. off you know left field that kind of stuff All, yeah. everything that george miller has in this and hilarious just, I, I trust that <laughs> Yeah, I, I trust. Yeah, I trust that you know whatever he comes up with for the for the movie is gonna be right, and yeah. that's the thing you know that I mean just just going back to Star Wars and how they became at least in my opinion like fan service like yeah, the entirety too. of Disney is fan just machine. listening to fans so much, yeah that it's just like why do we need the backstory for I don't know C three PO's whatever golden plated chess piece or something I don't why we don't need this. And no. and yet they listen and they people get it and then they complain that it's not good enough. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you got what you wanted and all of a yeah. sudden it's not good enough. Well, maybe you well, should have. It's think of a like, couple. I don't know if think, you noticed, think of a relationship. Think of a relationship. If you're constantly like only doing what you think your partner will want, they'll find you to be pathetic. They'll be like, aren't you? Yeah. Aren't, you aren't you capable of coming up with your own decisions in this? Like, That's true. You're just you're just that waiting happens. for me to show my approval, and it's very unattractive. And you want to dump that person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I want to yeah. do. Dump because like they dump. have no personality. They just listen. Like that's. And they yeah. do like okay where's where's the appeal there's <laughs> you are you're yeah, a true know, kindred spirit mean, shem <laughs> holy shit i'm so grateful to make to to to, to make to, to become e-friends i guess you hey, know that's likewise so glad i mean to, for sure we can we can talk about mad max and all kinds of things for hours i mean i'm telling yeah, you brother. but mm -hmm. the 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 thing um 
Yeah, that's that's one of those things that that listening to, to. I mean, I'm talking about this this. Do you said this? What is this? The democratization of yeah. of this, of of the internet. Mm-hmm. That is false democratization. Mm-hmm. I agree that it's. I don't know why, but people, I think they they think because they share the same platform with others. Yeah, this gives them the same sort of like. Not even, I mean, not only the voice, but they think that their valid, their opinion is as valid as anybody else's. Like, yeah. oh, no, 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 you just have the voice. Yeah, that's all you have, and you, there's it. something that's got to come with it. It's not that yeah. you just sit down, you type, I want this and that, and that happens. And if it doesn't, then you get angry. No, dude. First mm-hmm. of all, you got to have some kind of like expertise. I don't know, maybe something. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I don't put out ideas for whatever the next Mad Max movie is. I don't, I don't even compare it to George Miller whatsoever. Yeah, it's dude. not my place to do this. And yet, there's people out there who are like, "Oh, I should I want to see the backstory for dog for the dog from Mad Max?" And we're like, "No, no, no, you don't. You no, you really don't. You should probably no. just delete that comment." It's, it's, yeah, well, it's basically and, and it's also all, it's, yeah, it's people ahead. who. Yeah, it's also the people who, for example, they want to cast uh, certain character. I mean, certain actors and characters just by the looks. Come on, man. I mean, what about acting? Is that does that yeah. not matter at all anymore? Exactly. There's oh this character kind of looks like Han Solo. Let's let's okay he should be Han. No he should not. Maybe he doesn't know no. how to act at all. You know I mean this, that's just one of the things that I have a problem with when when I going online it, and, and and reading a whole bunch of comments and I getting ideas from people who don't know what any better. But it's all about know, where it, it comes it from. It's all about where it comes from. Basically, as you'll notice across all the topic podcast network, if you just check it out, all of the shows I I it's because once again it was this thing of I didn't see someone doing it, so I just wanted to start making it myself and it is actually i i tolerate like i have zero tolerance for people who try to 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 bring in um you know hate hate wagoning i call it or uh you know trying to sort of mine or farm controversy or or any anything mm-hmm. of what you basically see like 80 percent of people do to try and get clicks we are deliberate like we're very mellow very accepting and so if it comes from if you're like hey i actually let's talk about how it could be interesting not you see see i just said could be it's a gentler way of phrasing it instead of like they should do this and there's so yeah. much evidence like i my my vocal register never goes that high because like what the <laughs> fuck do i know i'm just riffing i'm just talking yeah. and then if some of the creators happen to hear it then that's great but it's there's never any expectation basically we live in an age of entitlement and fuck this planet and we should actually be in the mad max universe and see how they handle themselves we, well, in a fucking, we, we, we're on our way yeah we're on our way <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's something happening in the world right now that's just fuck. i mean we're probably gonna be well prepared for for whatever's gonna happen you said it dude but until then <laughs> let's make our mad max um you know uh i guess chronicles and uh, this is a pod chronicle you're doing this amazing video um series which i again must express immense gratitude for dude uh, i feel like i met a brother out in the wasteland today um, you. likewise dude absolutely man for sure fuck yeah hell yeah and let us um <laughs> fuck yeah let us uh you know what we could we really could talk all day but you know i want you to have the rest of your weekend i'm gonna start editing this one up and yeah. um and uh, let's catch back up soon and i love that idea of we'll just I'll, I'll actually have it in the screen here we can break down the movie we'll just go through it huh uh, on the way to, sure, to furiosa because yeah. i'm sure you'll you'll edify yourself you probably might even get some video ideas along the way you'll be like actually now that we're at minute six or seven or 17 or whatever, like this gives me this idea for a video and it might be this additive experience for everyone. So I yeah. think it'll also, yeah, bring people on this sort of analytical chronicle journey along with us, man. Fuck yeah. Right, yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah, man. let's do that. Dude, it's been such a pleasure. Make sure to have a great rest of your day.
Hey, same to you. There. See you it's really. been great meeting you. I mean, seriously, this is the one of the best conversations that I had. Oh um, man, about Mad Max, and Fuck also yeah. in general, because I can tell that yeah, you're definitely on the same page as I am when it comes to a lot of things. So, it's great. It's also right, a brother. bonus that you're uh, a huge fan of Mad Max as well. <laughs> man, and uh, like I said, you got a standing invite to Australia. Like, fucking crash on our couch, man. Like anytime. All right. <laughs> okay, I'll take you up on it then. See you, brother. Be well. All right. See ya. Every episode takes many volunteer hours to create. In fact, the Topic Podcast Network is 100% listener-supported. We refuse to include distracting like, share, and subscribe requests during the show itself. Only here, after the end, do we feel comfortable humbly asking you, our beloved audience, to consider any form of support that feels true to you. Thanks again.